The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. Let us play with all our toys and let us think that we're big boys and let us make a lot of noise but we're in the world. And let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website spacedoutradio.com on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Game on! Game on! Game on! Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye bye. Get this free seat of our will be able to take off. 
Good evening and welcome to Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott, and it's good to have you along for the ride on this Wednesday, July 5th. Thursday, July 6th, if you're on the East Coast or across the pond, hope you had a great day and night as we are live right here in the Great White North on top of the mountains of central British Columbia, and we are here seven days a week. We welcome in everyone listening in on our terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. We are live as well on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We're also live on spacedoutradio.com, Spreaker, KTLK, The Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. If you like our music, get your horns up for Mr. Ron Bubblefoot Thal, formerly the lead guitarist of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy. Yes, Bumblefoot, a huge fan of this show is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. Now, if you're all over social media like I am, you can check us out on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, you can follow me at Dave Scott SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows from iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, Player.fm, TalkStream Live, and Stitcher. Our website is spacedoutradio.com with a brand new look as of yesterday. And if you head over to patreon.com for as low as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of Spaced Out Radio as well. Now, if you want to take part in this show, you got to do me a favor. You have to sign into one of our chat rooms. you got to go on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, or on Facebook at the SOR Space Travelers Club. Or if you're on Twitter, just use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio. I will get to your questions and comments in there as well. Now, for just 5 bucks a month on our website, you can become an SOR Space Traveler. And as of right now, you can head to our Spaced Out Radio store, pick up a t-shirt, poster, stickers. Don't forget your Paracon tickets for this fall, September 29th to October 1st, right here in beautiful 108-mile Ranch, British Columbia. We're doing it. It's going to be a great fun. And we got some guests that we are going to release as of next week. We're going to release the lineup for that. We also have the Encounter Online dealing with everything paranormal, courtesy of our editors Eric Barkham and Everett Themer. And if you've had a sighting or an experience you can't explain, fill out an SOR Sightlines report. We also want to introduce you to Tim Doyle from UFOseekers.com. He's on the hunt of everything strange going on in California and Northeast, wherever it is. He's also helped design our brand new look website, so make Make sure you say thanks to Tim when you get the opportunity. Tonight we have one of the most familiar voices and faces in the field of supernatural research. For the last 20 plus years, Nick Redfern has become one of the most prolific voices of stories that will scare the living hell out of you. From black-eyed kids to Sasquatch and alien abduction and the chase of the encounters have Nick at the top of his game when it comes to being a leader in this field of research. Nick has been in love with UFOs since literally 1978. His main area of research centers around determining what has been learned about the subject of UFOs and 
cryptids. Nick is the author of several best-selling books on UFOs, including The FBI Files, The FBI UFOs Top Secrets Exposed, Cosmic Crashes, The Incredible Story of the UFO That Fell to Earth, and so much more. Once again, Nick Redfern, welcome for the first time to Spaced Out Radio. I have to tell you, my friend, it is a giant honor to have someone of your stature on this show. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and our audience. Well, well, thanks for having me on the show, Dave. I'm looking forward to it. Nick, you mentioned that in 1978 you started getting a real, real interest in the field of ufology. What led you to that? Was it just too many sci-fi movies, or did you have your own experience? No, actually, I was only sort of like a, a young kid back in 78. You know, I wasn't sort of doing research or anything like that back then. I was sort of... Uh, you know, I was just barely a teenager. But um, my my interest actually goes back uh, because of my dad. He uh, served in the British Royal Air Force, uh, which is the equivalent of the U.S. Air Force. And uh, he was a radar mechanic. Um, you know, he would sort of look after all the, the radar equipment at the base where he was stationed at the time. And he was involved in several uh, radar-based UFO encounters in the uh, at the height of his career with the with the military, and it involved uh, squadrons, if you like, of UFOs flying towards the English coastline um, from the from coming in from Europe, flying very high, very fast. Nobody knew what these things were, but the first thought was, well, it's got to be the Russians launching some kind of sneak attack, which. Fortunately, it wasn't. Um, and when the uh, fighter pilots were sent up to try and intercept these things, they described seeing not classic, you know, typical aircraft, but flying saucer-type craft. And this went on for three or four nights, and um, on the final night, everybody was told, that's what the pilots, the radar operators, the radar mechanics like my dad, um, everybody was told, you won't talk about this. And um, my dad didn't tell anybody about it until, like I said, I was about probably 10, 11, something like that. And, um, and that really got me interested. You know, as I said, I wasn't doing research as a young kid, but I did start reading books from people like... Um, uh, Brad Steiger, he was one of my sort of early uh, favorite writers, and John Keel, who wrote The Mothman Prophecies. So that's that's really what got me interested in the whole subject. Did you think it would lead to a lifelong passion, though, in trying to find the truth to what you've written about? Uh, in one word, no. <laughs> but um, I think it's it's fair to say, you know, I, had a, I developed an interest. But um, what happened was the reason how I got sort of more involved in writing and researching was that when I when I finished school I didn't really know what I wanted to do you know when you're sort of that age everything's kind of new as soon as you leave school you know but um, as it happened whether coincidence fate or whatever um, I got a job offer which um, on a magazine which was in the uh, town I was living in at the time the magazine was called Zero and it was essentially like a music fashion entertainment uh, magazine for, you know, teenagers, kids in the 20s, that kind of thing. And um, I got the job. And um, to me, it didn't seem like a real job. You know, I was sort of going to concerts to see bands play and review them and do interviews with bands and, um, you know, write articles and reviews and um, with local celebrities. And it sort of really got me interested in the field of writing and the, the editors and staff there um, sort of tutored me in you know how to how to structure an article and um, capture the reader's attention and um, 
and that's really how I got into the field of writing and um, I did all the the music columns and um, music's sort of a big area I still write about now I sort of grew up in the punk era and I never really left that era behind to be honest um, and so that's how I sort of got into writing and then I thought well why not after a couple of years of doing this I thought why not try and combine the interest in the paranormal with uh, but take it like a, an investigative journalistic approach to to looking into these issues so that's sort of pretty much what I've done ever since really you know, Nick, you mentioned something very, very clear. There are very few real investigative journalists taking this field as seriously as you do or as many others do, and there isn't a lot of investigative journalism that goes along. Why do you think a lot of journalists have stayed away from this field when really it's so intriguing and what I believe to be the biggest story of mankind's history next alone to Jesus Christ himself coming up or back down from the heavens? Well, I think you know, the main reason why mainstream journalists don't really touch the UFO subject, unless it's like a light-hearted story, you know, where they can slightly poke fun at it or whatever, I think it just comes down to one thing. It's sort of the fear of their reputation becoming the journalist who chases little green men. Uh, so in other words, privately, I know quite a few respected journalists who are really interested in the subject, but publicly really won't touch the subject for fear of ridicule. You know, I guess from their perspective, they kind of see it as, um, you know, investigating something that's isn't real or is something to poke fun at, whereas they feel that, you know, they should be looking into, you know, political issues or breaking news, which which I understand. But on the other hand, I also think if you have a passion for something and you earnestly and deeply believe in it, then you should stand up and say so and not really worry about what other people think. You know, if other people don't like it, well, that's too bad. You know, <laughs> that's how it goes. Do you think this is such a underutilized piece of information that the mainstream is staying away from, whether it's because of ridicule, whether it is, it is because of, you know, as many people believe, the media is infiltrated and they're not going to cover these subjects because the government doesn't want to. Are you buying into all that, or do you think what it is is basically people are just sheepish to put their name aligned with UFOs or Bigfoot or something along those lines? Well, I think it's a bit of both, actually, Dave, because there are a number of examples, you know, where um, particularly very controversial UFO cases, I mean, like my own father's, you know, where people have been told, or in the military have been told, you will not talk about this. So sometimes it's very difficult for the media to get their hands on a really good story because it's been so successfully and deeply buried so the media doesn't even get on onto it at all however in saying that there is this angle you know whether it's bigfoot chupacabra loch ness monster you name it aliens ufos um there's no doubt that the the ridicule factor is definitely one that keeps a lot of mainstream journalists away from the subject as i said but that's publicly. Privately, you know, I know more than a few that well, I've had some really good conversations with them, and it's clear they know, you know, very, they're very well learned and, and understood in the subject, but um, they won't touch it. And, uh, and that's a sh unfortunate because when you look at some of the official government documents which have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act on UFOs, 
you know, they're highly credible. And you can easily make a serious news story on the UFO subject just as much as you can, you know, a story on whatever's going on in North Korea or Syria or whatever. You know, you, you, they can be treated just as seriously. Do you find that with all the research that you do, out of everybody you have talked to, that there's still that one or two people that you would love to talk to about this subject but just have not had the opportunity to do so as of yet? And I'll tell you, the one that I really wanted to interview, and too bad he is deceased now, was author Philip Kraft. Uh, he's a former Los Angeles Times editor. He spent I believe, 40 years there until he had his encounter. And in his first book, he basically said, I thought people like who were experiencers were a bunch of crackpots until it happened to me. So is there anybody that you have wanted to chat with? Well, actually, yeah, just before I get to that, I, I actually met him once at a conference oh, really? in Laughlin, Nevada, in 1998, and um, he was promoting his book there. Then I didn't have a chance to speak to him, but he, he gave a really good lecture about uh, his sort of face-to-face -face encounters and so on. But I would say, um, had I had the chance to meet him, but he's also deceased now, the one person, I guess, would be John Keel, uh, who wrote the Mothman Prophecies book, which the, the 2002 movie starring Richard Gere was based, of the Mothman Prophecies, was based on Keel's book. And I like Keel's writings and theories because he recognized that a lot of these phenomena, like the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, you know, they're not weird, but they're like really weird. There's something, you know, that takes them beyond the, the barriers of just unknown animals, but to something that may be sort of verging on, you know, the paranormal. And, uh, and Keel had some really alternative, intriguing theories but not just that you know he's a very atmospheric writer i mean one of the things that sometimes lets books down is when you have a great story but the but it reads so dry and bland but keel you know he was one of these classic writers that came out of the school where you know it was a dark and stormy night and the moon was full you know and he, he really kind of sets the scene for a for a spooky story I always figured that you would be wanting to talk to someone on a on a political side, maybe a former president who is a believer or something along those lines. I don't take you for someone like John Keel, that's for sure. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you can look at different people from different perspectives. I mean, I like Keel's stuff because of his writing style and his theories. Um, but if you're going to, you know, if you want the answer to what happened at Roswell or something like that, then, yes, you know, the ideal thing would be for me to be able to speak to somebody who could say, hey, Nick, this is what happened, and this is the story. And, you know, get a scoop on, on a major figure, um, you know, when perhaps one day we get disclosure and a decision's made to, to tell the world what it really was. That would be, you know, that would be an amazing sort of goal to, to shoot for, you know, to speak with the person who finally says, okay, we're going to come clean, and, and here's what it is. You mentioned disclosure. Do you believe, then, that we are anywhere closer to being to disclosure like a lot of pundits and experts tend to try and put off in the public, or do you think we are still miles away? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, in terms of the, the disclosure movement, you know, I think most of them are very enthusiastic and driven, but... 
I think there's also a lot of naivety involved in the sense that I would like disclosure to come. And I don't rule out that it couldn't, but, you know, time and time again, and particularly at UFO, UFO conferences, I hear people say words to the effect of, oh, you know, disclosure's coming next year, and then next year, it's coming next year. And, you know, this has been going on for years, and I think, for me... I, I, unfortunately, I'm not being sort of pessimistic, I'm just being realistic. I don't think it's going to come anytime soon. Now, you know, some people might disagree with me and say, you know, it's around the corner and it's coming. But I've heard this, as I said, I've heard this time and time before. And I think sometimes it may be just a test of our reactions to see how people respond. You know, if somebody on the inside comes out with a statement publicly or covertly saying, yeah, disclosure's coming. Maybe it's actually just done to see how the public reacts to, you know, the possibility of being exposed to alien life. And so, you know, they sort of go along with this sort of ruse. But because it's happened so many times, it's almost like, you know, the story of the boy who cried wolf. I mean, how many times do we have to be told and then just see that it doesn't happen? So, so I'm cautiously... Hopeful, maybe one day it'll happen, but I'm certainly not right now holding my breath. I think, you know, I've seen it too many times. I'm curious in regards to disclosure and what you think, and this will be the last question I ask because I think it really is a moot point until it happens. But I'm a firm believer, Nick, that the main reason why we will not see disclosure is because there is too much riding on it. There's public safety, there is government throwdown and, and overthrows, pardon me. I think it could open up a real Pandora's box if we, it were ever to come out that the government, whether it's the United States, Russia, or whoever, has been hiding for decades this sort of contact with extraterrestrials. And namely, all the abductees out there, myself included, who have had experiences, and the government may have known about them, but was not keeping the public informed. To me, that seems to be the biggest issue when it comes to disclosure. Would you agree with that, or do you think it's totally different? No, actually, I fully agree with you on that. I think the main reason why we're not getting disclosure is because it really is, you know, sort of a Pandora's box-type situation. And I think a lot of people in ufology don't realize that. They think it's just going to be a case of, you know, the president stands up and says, well, well, yes, we have been hiding this and hiding that, and now we've decided to reveal it. If it was just, you know, say that the government had got two crashed UFOs and seven or eight well-preserved alien bodies stored away somewhere, if that's all it was, I think, you know, they could potentially tell us but there are a lot of other issues that could come into play. For example, let's say what's being hidden isn't just the existence of UFOs, but what if what's also being hidden is technology that would allow us to, you know, fuel the planet without oil, um, would allow new technologies to be, you know, integrated into society that would make life much easier. So in other words, there could be economic reasons why the truth isn't coming out, one of them being, you know, to sort of bleed the oil dry, dry first because it's such a rich economic form of income, you know, and, and, and money. So I think there could be things like that, like economic reasons why we haven't been told the truth, because, you know, the sudden introduction to society of incredibly different technologies to which we rely on could actually 
upset and imbalance the you know the structured order of society and world economies so i think that's an area that a lot of people don't think of as to how it could radically alter society and uh, corporations and industries that would go bankrupt and extinct with the introduction of alien technology was to happen now of course that's just theoretical but i mean some people also um you know look at the connections between ufos and religion and how that might impact upon society and religious beliefs you know the idea that um some religions believe you know that the only planet that has life is earth well what would happen to those really those particular religions if it was found that after all life is teeming all over the universe so i think they're also sort of the religious issues to to deal with as well and i think those who are hiding the truth realize all this and they re- also realize it's such a big issue to deal with they just prefer not to deal with it and just keep it all locked away because that's far more easier to do than actually have to inform the public and create this entire huge problem for themselves do you believe then that with everything that is going on that there is currently ufo technology hidden somewhere on this planet a lot of people speculate it's at area 51 is it there do you buy that story well I'd like to see some more hard evidence. I mean, there's no doubt that stories like this, you know, are circulating, particularly from places like Area 51, where they talk about, you know, trying to um, understand alien technology and figure out what it is. Uh, I sometimes wonder if, even if we have the technology, if it would even be so far in advance of us that we just wouldn't be able to understand it. You know, kind of the analogy being... Um, giving somebody from the 15th century an iPhone. They just wouldn't have a clue. But more importantly, they wouldn't be able to replicate the technology and and use it. So I think, you know, I sometimes wonder if these stories about having um, sort of crashed UFO materials and we're trying to understand them and we're replicating them, perhaps at the height of the Cold War particularly, that was sort of like a fear tool to frighten the Russians into thinking we got something far beyond anything they had. So I think, you know, it's not impossible, but there could also be sort of like a psychological warfare angle thing going on where, um, you know, these stories are designed to sort of freak out the enemy. Uh, But in saying that, you know, a number of people have come forward to actually claim they they worked with alien technology, people like Bob Lazar, who was, you know, granted quite a controversial character who claimed to have worked in a sort of a subdivision of Area 51, and, and claimed to actually seen and, and worked on recovered flying saucers. Do you think, then, that there is the possibility that there are some sort of hybrid-type programs out there where we are sharing technology with aliens? I mean, you mentioned Bob Lazar. Jordan Maxwell yeah. has been very, very vocal over the last two, three decades that this is currently happening. Are you buying that, or do you think that there's just not that right voice that has come out to say, yes, this is real and this is happening. Well, I would say somewhere between the two, because I, like a lot of people, I actually don't write off Bob Lazar's story. You know, a lot of UFO researchers do. Uh, Stan Friedman, for example, just, you know, just does not believe his story, period. Um, 
I think there is enough data in, in Lazar's story to suggest that there's a truth to it. And I think what these agencies often do is kind of choose maverick-type scientists who can think outside of the box and come up with alternative theories. I think that's why they went with someone like Lazar, which a lot, he might be a person that a lot of people would, might not have expected to be, have recruit, be recruited. So I think all of that is quite possible. Um, now, to what extent, you know, it actually is going on versus it could be, I think that's sort of an area to still debate on. I mean, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm deeply interested in Bob Lazar's story, but for me, you know, taking, again, like an investigative approach, I, I would need to see hard evidence, you know, before I sort of really championed it. But there's no, there's no doubt it's a fascinating story. And the interesting thing is, you know, for when a lot of people have said that, oh, Bob Lazar's just lying, well, you often find that people who fabricate and hoax things, particularly in ufology, they add extra information as the story goes on because, you know, they, the people who buy their books or listen to them at conferences, they want something else. And then so the story gets elaborated by the hoaxer. But if you look at Bob Lazar's story, he hasn't changed it one bit since he, he came out of the uh, shadows back in 1988. That's almost 30 years ago. And he hasn't changed his story. And when people have asked him about things he doesn't know about, he doesn't elaborate. He just, I don't know. That's not really the way that a hoaxer usually works. So that's one of the things that does actually keep it kind of wide open for me. What do you think about the theory with him that he had his entire collegiate record and professional record pretty much wiped out? I mean, the guy well, is yeah. brilliant. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in his story, and, and I don't think a, a, a reporter like George Knapp is mm -hmm. going to be, you know, falsifying information to try and break what's happening at Area 51. Would you be in that same concern? Yeah, I actually would. Um, one of the things I would note about Lazar is, you know, regardless of his sort of academic credentials or not, he is a brilliant scientist. I mean, we know from um, archive newspaper reports from the early 80s that he did work on classified programs uh, at Los Alamos. And his uh, phone number actually appears in the Los Alamos National Laboratory um, um, phone book. So, you know, those are all good pointers. Now, in terms of his um, academic credentials, in terms of documenting them, that's where he gets a little bit hazy because it's been very difficult to the point of almost impossible to actually prove these credentials. Um, but, and, you know, there's these accounts of, you know, all the documentation being pulled and vanishing, which, you know, admittedly and understandably, a lot of people find that difficult to accept that all the paperwork would be gone, you know, from the college or the universities that he studied at. But on the other hand, um, I do think that Lazar would be exactly the type of person that a program like this would want on board, you know, sort of the maverick-type person who isn't sort of tied to conventional belief systems or theories, you know, scientific theories, but who's willing to go out on a limb and whose mind, you know, goes off in areas that perhaps other scientists wouldn't want to touch. So I think that probably happens a lot, that rather than pick the, <coughs> excuse me, rather than pick the scientists that most people might think they would pick, you know, the ones sort of 50, 60 years old, 
very well respected and knowledgeable, etc. I think, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the sort of outside of the box scientist who has a very different approach to things, who's not, not afraid to, you know, um, get his hands in the fire, so to speak, and come up with new concepts. I think those are the sorts of people they want on board. And also, um, you know, being sort of an alternative character, if they wanted to, you know, sort of knock him down and discredit him, they could do that quite easily as well. So I think they, they look very carefully as to how they bring people on board uh, into these particular UFO programs. Do you think there are any credible experiencers out there, whether they've worked on black ops or whether they're alien experiencers who've come out in public that are 100% telling the truth? Because it seems like we always seem to go back to the Travis Waltons of the world. There's nobody really standing up. I mean, at one point we could have said Stan Romanek, but he's kind of in a peculiar peculiar. Peculiar situation right now. I don't know why I ha- couldn't say that word, but the whole point is there's really nobody who is coming out being a real stalwart when it comes to alien abduction and the experiences, or someone replacing Lazar saying, I'm there, I can confirm it. Are you surprised by that? Well, I'm not in the one sense because, I mean, when Lazar. Uh, was working there uh, out at S4, this sort of portion of the overall Area 51. Um, When he left, I mean, he actually was fearful that... I mean, the the last time he left, um, he he was fearful that if he went back, after he'd started talking to people like George Knapp, he was fearful that if he went back to the base, he would never get out again. You know, he was fearful that no one would see him again. Um, And so I, I understand the reluctance of people to sort of come forward with what they know and of course the the one thing that a lot of people forget or don't necessarily appreciate is that we don't know how much of the story told to Lazar was true you know he may have been shown the alien technology but it's possible that you know some of the documents that he said he read were actually you know fabricated to keep him away from certain aspects of the story in other words they may well have wanted him to work on the technology but they may not have wanted him to know all about the rest of the program, which, you know, gets to the issue of what's known as need to know. What you don't need to know, you're not told. And if they do tell you, it may not be the full or in the correct story. So sometimes when these people come forward from places like Area 51 and they tell controversial stories, it may not be that they're lying. It may be that they were exposed to hoaxed material to confuse you know, the real material, that if they if they leak the material, then all this garbage would also get caught up with it, and then people would, you know, just turn away from it. So I think that happens a lot. But, I mean, you mentioned um, Travis Walton. I've known Travis uh, for a few years now, and I run into him probably two or three times a year at conferences, and I've always come away very impressed by him. I think, you know, one of the important things is when you're talking to, like, abductees and people who've had really profound encounters is 
not so much just also listening to the story, which of course is very important, but also just you know hanging out with them, you know, at a restaurant or having, you know having dinner or having a beer in the bar, and just chatting with them about their experiences in a one-to-one relaxed situation. And what I found with, with Travis is that, to me, you know, he comes across like a regular guy who is exposed to something extraordinary. And, uh, you know, he doesn't come across to me like uh, anybody who's any more than that. You know, I don't perceive him as a hoaxer or a fantasist. I, I think something really weird did happen to him. Getting back to Bob Lazar for a moment, there's a lot of people out there who believe he was either a con man or a disinformation type agent in the field of ufology because he survived. Yet we've seen people like Phil Schneider and others so-called knocked off by what people perceive or allege is some sort of government agency. Why do you think Bob Lazar was never shut up to the Mm -hmm. final end? Well, I think mainly because he timed everything to his advantage. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When he was out there... You know, and he saw all this technology, and, and you know, he's amazed by it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and he realised how highly classified all this was, and um, and we know that he, you know, he started to talk quietly, you know, with his wife about this and a couple of friends, and um, and there's evidence that um, you know his phone was monitored, his home phone was monitored at the time, and those on the inside realised that you know this guy they just brought in was starting to you know, talk a little bit about things he shouldn't. So he was warned. Now, he was sort of perceptive enough to realize that when he, you know, he actually wasn't working there for long. It was just a couple of months. And he'd go back and forth, you know, he'd be shuttled back and forth. And on one occasion, you know, he felt that he'd sort of crossed the line, perhaps in terms of what he told people, friends and family. And he felt that if he, you know, the next time he went back to the base, he might not get out again in one piece or at all. And so the time before that, he left didn't, and didn't go back, you know, for that other time. But what he did instead was to contact George Knapp and, and then George broke the story. So I think by the time anybody on the inside may have wanted to take action against Lazar, he'd already gone public. And not only had he gone public, but he'd also gone public to George Knapp, a well-respected Vegas journalist. So I think had anything happened to him after he'd gone public, then that really would have sort of legitimized his story and vindicated it. And I think those on the inside realized that, that if they took action now when his story was all over the news, then people really would sit up. So I think they probably took the view that, well, most people aren't going to believe him. We'll just sort of try to ride it through and people will forget. The only ones who'll be talking about it are ufologists and the mainstream media won't want to know. And I think that's the approach they took. He was in the public domain, he told his story, and it was too late then then for them to do anything. Otherwise, it would, you know, just prove everything he really said if somebody put a bullet in his head or whatever. Yes, but diseases happen. You know what I'm saying? How many times have we we seen bullet holes become cancer? Mm -hmm. you're, You're right, and I mean... You know, when, I mean, there have been a few cases over the years, well, more than a few, where people in ufology have died under mysterious circumstances. And, you know, when you, when you look at that, you begin to realize, well, you know, maybe this particular death wasn't just an accident. Maybe that car accident 
that suicide, maybe they weren't car accidents or suicides after all. They were very skillful um, terminations, shall we say. So, you know, in that respect, you know, we need to sort of look at the UFO community carefully and sort of take a look at the the means by which a lot of these people have sort of passed on over the years. Were they getting too close to the truth? So, you know, I, I don't think with somebody like Lazar that there would be any attempt to take somebody like him out, you know, with a bullet in the back of the head, you know, down a dark road in Vegas one night. I don't think that would happen. But because it would raise too many sinister questions, or questions of a sinister nature, I should say. Um, but what I do think is that in certain circumstances, perhaps people, you know, have been subjected to sort of uh, planned suicides, which actually weren't, you know, or, you know, you, uh, you expose somebody to, you know, a dangerous virus, that kind of thing, and then it's, it's almost impossible to prove that there was any sort of sinister, underhanded thing going on. All you can really say is, well... Yeah, that that death seemed really strange, but it, it sort of hovers in that realm of we'll never really know. So I wouldn't be surprised if that hadn't happened. Nick, out of all the books and of all of the research you have done, have you ever had to worry about your safety? No, not no, not really. I mean, I've I've had um, you know a lot of old timers talk to me about their UFO experiences in the military, etc. And I've had a few weird experiences that have led me to believe that, you know, there's some sort of degree of monitoring. But I think, you know, that probably happens from everybody in ufology, you know, whether it's Stan Freeman, Richard Dolan, Whitley Strieber, whoever. I think, you know, pretty much everybody in the field is watched. But I think for the most part, it is a case of just just really watching to see who's talking to who and, um, and what's going on. Um, what I think... I think people who sort of really would be in major major danger would be people people like Lazar. If you're talking about people on the inside, people like Lazar. If you're talking about ufologists, you know, people like me, I think it would be, you know, if somebody approached, you know, a well-known ufologist with a bunch of classified UFO files. In other words, if it was like a like a ufological Edward Snowden type scenario um, and somebody was just given, you know, a 10-inch thick file of old classified records on Roswell from 1947, that person then probably could be in a great deal of danger, you know, not just because they've accepted and uh, received classified files, but the nature of what those files might contain. So I think, yeah, I think there's... For the most part, it's kind of like just a, a monitoring process and seeing who's talking to who. But, you know, if, if somebody crossed the line and was given something that could really blow the whole thing wide open, then I think they could actually be in a, in a really dangerous position. But, you know, no one's ever come to me and said, you know, <laughs> meet, meet me at midnight in the, you know, the basement car park and I'll hand over whatever. That's never happened to me. So, uh, you know, I'm not really the person in the position to sort of answer that question beyond hypothetically but but hypothetically i do think you know somebody could be in big trouble if they were given something that was classified and and as i said could you know bring this whole issue wide open I always like to ask that because on this show we have had so many people of a lesser, and I don't want to put them down, but of a lesser popularity such as yourself, where they said they've been threatened, they've had, they've been followed, they have had the men in black experiences, and 
talk about the real negativity of all this their computers hacked and the warnings and letters on their on their mailboxes or something along those lines yet for you who is really at the pinnacle of everything you really haven't experienced much of that 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 surprises me well yeah as i said the closest and so i can expand on it a little bit is sort of a lot of you know well not a lot but certain significant sort of issues related to sort of telephone interference and things like that. I've, I've had a few things like that and uh, odd situations involving, you know, uh, late-night calls and when I've, you know, traced the call and things like this, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a an agency office, that kind of thing, and then there's been a denial of any kind of call made to me. I think that's more of like an intimidation kind of thing. But, yeah, I mean, I've never had sort of, you know, the men in black knocking on the door or... You know the brakes on the car, you know, tampered with nothing like that. So um, why that? You know why some some people should be, you know, uh, approached in different ways. I don't know. I, I think what it probably comes down to is whether you know if one person really has something legitimate that could be dangerous to somebody, then that's the sort of person who could be you know caught for, for, who might get problems. Um, you know, a lot of the information I've got is, is good, solid, legitimate UFO material. But I have to admit, you know, I don't have that kind of smoking gun that would would give us everything we want. Now, there are maybe people who have some sort of smoking gun or something close to it. Maybe they're the ones that are sort of really getting the you know, the um, the deep threats and so on. So, um, again, I think each each case and each person is probably addressed on their own merits or what their own issues that they're getting involved in, you know, um, in terms of, of what action might be taken against someone versus just keeping a watch on someone, you know. I'm curious then to find out what your opinion is of John Podesta, because during the presidential campaign, he was very vocal about reporters pushing Hillary Clinton towards mm-hmm. ufology and the questions behind potential alien mm-hmm. contact. Now, we know he is one of the highest ranking officials, love him or hate him, uh, in regards to coming out publicly saying i can't get the information out there he's tweeted about it do you think it could be somebody like him who could be the next voice to crack this open or do you are you surprised that he was never really shut up about it with his position of authority well i think it could be several things actually one could be that you know somebody knew that he was talking about this and has become deeply associated with the ufo subject and I think, you know, in light of that, there could have been like almost like a psychological angle of, well, let's actually let him speak and run with it and let's see what the response is. You know, that might create some sort of angle of interest, you know, in terms of, again, seeing how the public and the media respond to these kind of situations, you know, uh, rather than just silencing him, take the view, well, hang on a minute, let's actually see what the response is when we, if he says something and if it's good, bad, indifferent, who knows what, you know, maybe somehow that'll work to our advantages. But what I would also say is that the more I've dug into this particular subject, the more that I've found that the people in government who you would expect to know 
what's going on. I actually don't know when it comes to UFOs. And this has kind of led me to believe that, for the most part, when it comes to the really significant, important UFO material, I don't actually think it's the government that's hiding it. Now, that might sort of, you know, confuse some of the listeners. But what I mean by that, I think there's almost like a secret government hidden deep within the regular government, um, which may not be, you know, um, overseen by Congress. It may get its funding through black budget programs, as they're known. And to the point where, you know, we do have a kind of secret government hidden within, you know, the, the regular elected government. And in other words, the people we expect to know the truth of what happened at Roswell or, you know, the truth behind abductions or whatever, they may not be the ones who do know but somebody knows. And so, in other words, I think, you know, when you look at the Podesta story, as high level and influential, you know, as he certainly is, the indications that there were other people far beyond power-wise who knew a great deal more than they knew, even, you know, in light of their, um, you know, status, if you like. So, so I think that's an important thing to note. Maybe that the people who we think are sitting on all this aren't actually the ones we should be looking for. I got a couple questions from Eric here, and he is asking, Nick, have you ever heard of Task Force Silk? No, I've never heard of that, no. I think it was between Eisenhower and Churchill back in the day. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't, don't know that one. And his second follow-up question is, have you ever heard of Order of the Black Swan? Um, not, it, it doesn't spring to mind, uh, unfortunately, no. Well, I'll get it out of him later on because he's going to okay. be on with me in hour number three. So I'm going to be oh, like, cool. I'm going to be like, Cooper, what the hell is this? What the <laughs> hell is this? You know, I'll get it out of him. And then I'll pass it on to you. But let's get back to the field of ufology as we got about seven minutes here before we have to go to break. Do you believe the experiences people are having are real? Or are you of the notion that there's a lot of people out there just trying to get that 15 minutes of fame and will make up anything? And if so, how do you, as an investigative researcher on this, tell the real from the fallacy? Well, I think, you know, in any aspect of, you know, the paranormal, it's ghost hunting, UFOs, Bigfoot, occasionally, you know, you all, unfortunately, always find someone who, you know, hoax something, and sometimes it's a minor hoax, and sometimes it's a huge hoax, you know, film footage or a story or a book deal, um, and I think it'll always be like that, but, you know, having sort of 25 years of research and interviewing probably thousands of people altogether... You know, you do become a good kind of judge of character. And, you know, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel I'm being biased when I say I think the vast majority of the people I've spoken to do come across as genuine, honest, earnest people who are just looking for answers as to what they saw or what they encountered or what happened to them. And, I do, you know, I'm a big believer in the alien abduction phenomenon, for example. Um, I think, you know, it's it's a legitimate phenomenon. Now, have there been some people in that genre that have um, 
that are folk scenes? Yes, there are. But that doesn't take away, you know, the vast majority of the people who have just had, you know, what can be at times deeply traumatic experiences with something that, you know, invades their personal space in the middle of the night and people have these abduction experiences. So, you know, I think the important thing is is to judge each case on its own merit and and also, you know, sit down with the people and actually have just regular conversations with them, get to know their character and to understand their mindset and not just, I mean, it's obviously important to focus on the story like the abduction or whatever, but it's equally important to try and, you know, understand their personality and character, period. Um, do they come across, you know, in regular conversation, normal conversation, like a fantasist um, or an egotist or something like that? Are they, are they constantly asking, you know, how much money can I get from selling this footage or whatever? And, and look if there are other agendas. So I think it's important to sort of look at people in, in ufology, people who've had experiences, from the perspective of their experiences, but also as regular people and just try and understand their mindset. And doing that, you do, over time, become a good judge of character, you know, like, almost like a psychological profile. We have about two and a half minutes before we have to go to break. I'm going to ask you your opinion then on Tom DeLong, who a lot of people are saying has come out with a lot of popularity and flair to the field of ufology, to a real younger crowd who follows his music. But a lot of people are also saying, well, maybe he's a disinformationalist as well because there's a lot of stories he keeps saying are going to come, but when the date comes, it never arrives. Well, yeah, I actually met him about eight or nine years ago at a conference in Vegas. He was there attending a, a lecture given by Jim Mars, the you know, the conspiracy writer, and uh, and he had an interest back then. And you know, he mentioned UFOs in a few songs as well when he was in Blink One Eighty Two. One of probably the most um, well known one, a song called "Aliens Exist." Now, my personally. I do think he is somebody who has a personal deep interest in the subject and he has had contact with, you know, high influential figures. And that is an important thing. I, I personally don't think he's a hoaxer or a fantasist or anything like that. But I do agree with you. The problem is, you know, this issue of, well, the, the story's coming and the story's still coming and it's still coming and we still don't have it. You know, it's very... To me, this very much mirrors the whole issue with uh, the disclosure movement, where we're constantly told, you know, it's coming next year, it's coming next month, it's coming at 2.30, 2.30 next Wednesday or whatever, you know. And, and I think Delange is kind of in that, um, that kind of genre, that kind of area. In other words, he's someone who I do honestly think has spoken to some influential in, in important people with stories to tell and data reveal data to reveal but i think it can be dangerous when you start making predictions of dates you know of when things are going to surface because invariably in this subject they don't surface when we're told they're going to surface and i think that's the one area i think he should shy away from is actually you know giving us specific dates etc when this is going to happen or when we're going to get new material i think he should be more cautious and say look i've spoken to these people maybe disclosures come in i can't give any guarantees on dates or anything like this but i'm pushing as hard as i can i think that's the approach that he should be taking
We are with Nick Redfern, famous UFO cryptid writer here on Spaced Out Radio tonight. Nick is going to join us for one more hour in hour number three. Everett Themer, Eric Cooper, and maybe some Eric Markham to bring on the finality of this show as we will continue the UFO and strange and weird topics talk on everything Nick has said tonight. We are proud to have Nick on, and you know what? He's going to be with us one more hour. I will also get to more of your questions as well next hour black-eyed kids favorite encounter stories and so much more you're listening to spaced out radio i am your host dave scott we'll be back right after this coming september 29th to october 1st the first annual spaced out radio caribou paracon hi this is dave scott the event will be held at the spruce hill spawn resort in 108 mile ranch british columbia Come join us for an amazing weekend of speakers talking all things paranormal, UFOs, ghosts, aliens, Sasquatch, intuitiveness. Listen to great speakers like Miriam Delicato, Samantha Mowat, and the crypto guru, Ronald Murphy. Get your VIP passes by going to spacedoutradio.com and clicking on the Paracon banner. Come to BC, where the paranormal is waiting for you. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter Online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy in your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sightlines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. 
With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passports. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I... Vincent Zunza and my super sleuth partner Alexandra Sullivan track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest, from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock, loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up, enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Great to have you along for the ride. Tomorrow night, we're getting into the land of mystery, the Lady of the Dunes. I learned of this murder mystery when I was at the Provincetown Paracon in May. And it's an intriguing story. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about it. It's a almost a 40-year-old mystery 
that nobody still has even identified the body. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone listening in on WQEE 99, Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. We are also live on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We are live on KTLK, The Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. And if you're listening in on on Revolution Radio, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Kakorophobia is your password. Kakorophobia. Yes. Nobody knows what it means, but that's your password for tonight as Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the Mighty SOR. Now, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with me live during the show. You can give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can follow me on Instagram, Dave Scott, SOR. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes, and our website is spacedoutradio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including our Spaced Out Radio store, which has VIP tickets to the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon, being held September 29th to October 1st, right here in beautiful 108-mile ranch, British Columbia, at the Spruce Hills Spa and Resort. It's going to be an absolute great time. We would love to have all of you guys visiting us, weirdos, up here in BC. You can also check out Bumblefoot's music, read up on the encounter online, and so much more. You can also check out our affiliation with UFOseekers.com. Tim from UFO Seekers rebuilt our website. It looks amazing. I hope you let Tim know what you think as well. Tonight we are talking with Nick Redfern. He is one of, in what I consider, probably the most popular author when it comes to everything strange and weird from UFOs to Bigfoot to black-eyed kids. You can find all of his books at any major bookstore and on Amazon or Barnes & Noble's website. Nick, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. Nick, I got a couple questions from our audience here, and I always love to squeeze in their questions because, you know, in the end, this show is about them. And this one comes from Claudia. And Claudia is asking, Nick, could you please share an encounter story that you found absolutely fascinating? Well, yeah, I mean, a couple of things spring to mind, but one particularly, um, one of my uh, sort of favorite things to investigate is the uh, original Chupacabra of Puerto Rico. Um, I've been to Puerto Rico many times looking for this this strange creature known as, as the, as the uh, Chupacabra. And sightings began back in the 1990s on Puerto Rico. And I've been to, been to the island many a time um, looking into, you know, cases and sightings. And certainly the most... Because um, my other big interest beyond UFOs is cryptozoology, which is the study of unknown animals. And um, when I was out there in 2004 with a crew from the Sci-Fi Channel, I had the opportunity to interview a woman who'd had an encounter... Um, with a chupacabra uh, way back in 1975. Um, she lived in the El Yonke rainforest, which is this huge rainforest that sort of dominates Puerto Rico. And um, she described this thing as almost like a, like a bat-like creature with these leathery wings and these bright glowing eyes. And, um, and it terrified her, quite understandably. Um, but what's interesting is that I found that a lot of the areas where 
these chupacabra were being seen, there was also sort of a proliferation of UFO reports as well, which sort of, you know, has made the, the connection possibly, uh, theoretical connection of some sort of linkage between the UFO phenomenon and, and certain strange creatures. So that was sort of a, a particularly fascinating case, you know, because I had the opportunity to, to uh, speak with her in person. Her name was Norka. And, um, and to sort of, again, to sort of sit opposite someone and hear this sort of fantastic story from somebody telling it in, you know, a very credible, down-to-earth way was, you know, it was very, very memorable, really. Hello. Hey, Nick. Joe is asking in the chat room as well that he's read a couple of your Bigfoot books. What is your favorite Bigfoot story that you have had? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I would actually say probably the one of the ones that I investigated in the UK. A lot of people don't realize that, uh, that Europe in general and the UK in particular have sort of Bigfoot and wild man type stories attached to them but uh, but they really do there's um a lot of sort of um bigfoot type creatures have been seen over the years in sort of the larger forests in the uk and some of the wilder mountainous areas and one that i actually got interested in when i was a kid because it um occurred only about a 20 minute drive excuse me 20 mile drive from where i used to live when i was a teenager and it was a creature that became known as the man monkey, which, as the name suggests, it was sort of like a humanoid, hair-covered type creature that looks sort of superficially ape-like, but also had human qualities at attached to it as well. Um, the sightings began, or at least the recorded sightings, were first surfaced in the 1800s, and people described seeing this creature that looked... It kind of sounds like a chimpanzee, but much larger, but not quite the size of, of a gorilla. And it was seen haunting the woods uh, near a small t village called Ranson, uh, which is, as I said, about a 20-minute drive uh, thereabouts from where I used to live. And I got interested in that story when I read about it. Um, when I was probably about 14 or 15. It was mentioned in a book called Alien Animals. And... Um, with it being so close, you know, I went out there quite a few times and sort of, you know, stayed out late at night and through the night with the tents and, um, you know, in case something turned up. But it didn't. But, I mean, that that was sort of the, one of the earliest cases of Bigfoot-type creatures that I personally investigated. So I guess that's one of the reasons why, you know, I sort of think about that one as being a standout because it was sort of one of the earliest ones where I did kind of like a, you know, a road trip investigation it was a fascinating story of this creature that uh, you know has been or creatures have been seen time and time again and it's a strange story because it sounds like a bigfoot type animal but it also has sort of ghostly properties to it as well where the people have said the creature seems to have like, winked out of existence or you know sort of like spectral rather than physical and other people said it just kind of winked in and out of existence so it's a very fascinating but also a weird story the, the the man monkey tale do you believe bigfoot is a creature of some sort of supernatural power or do you believe what a lot of researchers believe that it is some sort of gigantopithecus or creature along those lines that has been here yet hiding for centuries mm. no I, I think there is some sort of 
stranger aspect to Bigfoot than it. I don't think it's just a North American equivalent of like an African gorilla or anything like that. Um, I think there are certain aspects to the Bigfoot mystery that do take it down more of a paranormal slash supernatural avenue. And the reason why I say that is that, you know, we've got thousands of, of Bigfoot reports on file and granted the other category is much smaller. But there is also a substantial number of reports where people have said they've seen Bigfoot in the woods and it's sort of surrounded by these weird little balls of light, like glistening light. Other people have said they've seen this, you know, this hulking eight-foot-tall monster in front of them. And it's literally, you know, it's vanished in a flash of light or it's, you know, just dematerialized or, as some people believe, jumped into another... Uh, dimension of existence and you know the the fact is that for there to be sightings of Bigfoot all across the US which there are there should be thousands of these creatures you know around to ensure like a, a healthy he, a healthy herd you know enough um, so you wouldn't have sort of reproductive inbred issues that kind of thing and if there are thousands of them you know in a country so ad advanced as the US with all the technology we have, you, you, you'd imagine we would by now we would have at least caught just one, you know. <laughs> We're not talking about something the size of like a squirrel or a rat. We're talking about eight-foot-tall animals roaming the United States in their thousands. And we're still not able to catch them or tag them or put them in a zoo or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, Bigfoot is clearly the luckiest animal on the planet. And it's the only one, pretty much, that really is elusive 100% of the time with a 100% success rate. And when you put all these weirder stories together, like these creatures vanishing in a flash of light and so on, I honestly do think we're dealing with something that's probably like um, a creature with interdimensional properties attached to it, that where it can literally sort of zip in and out of our reality and then back to its own environment, whatever that might be. I totally agree with you, Nick, and I'll tell you why. Five days after I had my Sasquatch sighting on a friend's property, we were doing a perimeter walk around their house, and they had a lot of spiritual activity on their 10 acres of land, which was in the backwoods area of our town. And I had the feeling we were being followed. And in behind their house, they had an old cherry tree that stood probably 20, 30 feet high. And... When I turned to look, right beside that cherry tree is what a lot of First Nations or American Indians would describe as some sort of pixelation, you know, uh, taking this creature out of man's view, but still there. Two of the four of us who were doing this perimeter walk actually saw it. I was one of them. And the other two said, ah, I don't see anything, let's continue walking. We walked another 20, 30 seconds when right behind us, there was the roar of this creature. And from then on in, I've always thought, holy smokes, the First Nations were right about this interdimensional or shape-shifting ability of this creature. Yet there are so many researchers out there who are absolutely so stuck on the fact of science and what they are doing is trying to bring scientific proof and i think that's the reason why we keep running around in circles in not proving this thing's existence mm -hmm. yeah i think you're right and i think also there's the 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 problem is that kind of like with um the ufo issue and journalists mainstream zoologists 
um, some of the people who could really do good work in looking for Bigfoot, they won't touch the subject like the same way a lot of journalists won't touch UFOs. Again, because there's this fear factor of being labelled as the, you know, the... Uh, the, the professor of, of whichever particular discipline of this university or that one, you know, they're not going to get next year's funding because they've gone public and said they believe in the existence of Bigfoot. So, again, I think there's this unfortunate situation of people not having the, you know, the, the strength of mind to actually come forward and say, well, yeah, I do believe Bigfoot exists. Um, if they did do that, I think it would open the door for more investigations. But the problem is... So many, you know, people in the academic world just don't want to run the risk, which is, you know, which is, which is unfortunate. You know, I would hope a lot of them really would sort of the strength of character to say, well, yeah, I don't care what you think. I, I believe this is what this creature is. Just too many closed minds in the end. Don't you think? Now, how do you keep an open mind with with the pertinent information you have received from a lot of investigators over the years? How do you keep the ability to have that open mind? Well, I think, Dave, what it comes from is the witnesses themselves. Now, I always tell people, I explain what I mean by that. I always tell people that the most important people in the field of whether it's cryptozoology or ufology are the witnesses. You know, it's not the, you know, the the book writers, or et cetera, et cetera, because without the witnesses, we have nothing to go on. So, in other words, I always listen carefully to people, you know, who relate their accounts, because they were there and I wasn't there. And like I said earlier, I do think the vast majority of the people I've spoken to are honest, genuine people, just puzzled by what they saw or experienced, and they want answers, and they, you know, they come to people like me for those answers. So, in other words... When you're dealing with people who are extremely credible and coming across as very balanced and not looking for anything in return other than just to share their story, I find that very encouraging to the point it pushes me on, even if, you know, I haven't personally got the evidence, physical evidence that Bigfoot exists or whatever. But it does push me on the fact that we have countless people of a credible nature. So as long as we've got that, then yes, it would be great to have my own experience. But if that doesn't happen, at least I can say for sure in my mind that the material and the data I've got from the people, you know, would, under other circumstances, would stand up in a court of law, you know, a very credible person giving hard, solid testimony. Do you find it offensive, then, that a lot of researchers now are saying the experience is no longer the, the, the main source of information? We need to hit up more science. We he, need to hit up more government officials, whether it's on cryptids, whether it's on ufology or anything like that. Because I see a lot more researchers going away from the personal experience. Now, you're right, actually, there. And I think... It- Every aspect of investigation needs to be, you know, upheld and continued. And, I, you know, I think the the drive to sort of look more into science and fringe science to try and understand the nature of these technologies that might be used in the experiences, then that's important. But I still come back to the fact that without the witnesses, we have nothing. You know, if you look at any, whether it's the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, you know, Whitley Strieber's experiences... Um, Roswell, 
you name, you know, the any, any any Bigfoot encounter, Loch Ness Monster encounter, the reason why we have them and the reason why we can write about them and lecture about them and talk about them on radio shows like this now is because the witnesses have come forward and shared their, their cases, their experiences. And so, in other words, I still think the witnesses are the most important people of all, you know, in terms of trying to get to the heart of the encounter and figure out what was going on. Is there a story, Nick, that you will not cover or look into? Is there one that has just made so much in your mind a fallacy that you don't even think it's worth your time? Um, yeah, well, I can think of one. But that would be the whole issue of the, the flat earth issue. I think that's just nonsense. <laughs> I don't believe the earth's flat. Uh, but a lot of people but a lot of people do a huge amount of people do it has a you know it's a major coverage so um you know that's something i would not even bother to get involved in and the other thing which i, w I don't get involved in but not because i just can't be bothered or anything like that or that i don't believe in it is the issue of ghosts um the only reason i don't really get involved in that issue is to be honest, it just doesn't really interest me that much i don't know why but it it, it never has you know stories of uh, strange creatures, Bigfoot, Mothman, etc. That's, you know, what, the kind of things I enjoy researching and also the UFO phenomenon. But I don't know why, but things like haunted houses, you know, seances, poltergeist, for some reason, it's never really sort of fired up my imagination. So that's why I don't really do much at all, you know, in that particular area. But not because I don't think there's nothing to it. It's just, it's just not my area of interest, you know. Well, let's get to one of the areas where people consider you an expert on, if there is an expert in this field, and that would be black-eyed children. Mm. What drew you well, yeah, to this I've... topic? Well, actually, I guess like a lot of people, you know, when the stories first started to surface on the Internet, I mean, I was, like, was going to say a few years ago, but it's, it's significantly more than that now. But um, when I first heard about the black-eyed children, I sort of instantly realized that the descriptions of them and the way they kind of knocked on people's doors late at night and tried to get in the house, etc. This is very much similar to the, the Men in Black reports. And I've done three books on the Men in Black over the years and one on uh, women in black stories. I'm actually working on another one on the subject as well now. So I've written quite extensively on that. And there's no doubt that there are sort of parallels between the Men in Black stories, which are very different to the movie, you know, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, very different to the movies. They're sort of more kind of paranormal and supernatural-based. But um, And that's kind of like with the Black Eyed Children. I mean, I've investigated um, quite a few of these cases, and um, a good friend of mine, David Weatherly, who doesn't live too far away from here, I live just outside Dallas, um, David has, you know, wrote the book on the subject, Black Eyed Children, it's called. And that, that's a really good study. And when I read that book, that was the one that sort of prompted me to realize, well, you know, this, these aren't just urban myths and friend of a friend tales, you know, or campfire tales, that kind of thing. But there is a real phenomenon. Now, one of the interesting things is, for the most part, unlike the many black stories, which are filled with UFO-themed tales attached to them, there aren't many stories, if hardly any at all, where there's a UFO angle to the black-eyed children phenomenon. It's just they just turn up out of the blue on anybody's doorstep. You know, you don't have to have been a UFO witness. 
Um, so I'm not entire. I have to admit, I'm not entirely sure, you know, what the black-eyed children are. But there's certainly no doubt. Uh, there's there's no doubt, you know, of a, of a lack of theories. I mean, you have the idea of alien-human hybrids, um, something paranormal, um, aliens themselves. Um, there's the demonic angle. You, uh, the idea that they're tulpas, the idea of tulpa is the idea in Tibetan teachings that, you know, the human mind can create things which can then become alive. It's kind of like giving birth to like a mind monster. So in other words, the more we think about the black-eyed children, the more strength it gives them to exist in a strange way. So I, what particularly fascinates me is all the different theories and the fact that the stories are so creepy. You know, these kids are sort of typically always seen, or for the most part, seen wearing black hoodies. You know, they come out late at night, they knock on people's doors. They try and get in and, you know, they say, we're lost, can we use the phone? Or we're hungry, we're homeless, can you give us some food? And there's always a weird vibe coming from them and people don't like to let them in. And for the most part, they haven't. But, uh, you know, it, it does come across as a creepy story, these sort of pale-faced kids with these solid black eyes trying to get their way inside your house you know it sounds like a classic horror movie story except for the fact that you know that it's real how often are these encounters happening because they seem so rare or so rare that people actually go public with them are they happening more than we know oh i'm sure they are and i think the stranger the experiences are unfortunately for unfortunately for us the more and more difficult it is to get to get these people to come forward and encourage them to speak because, you know, if you just saw a strange light in the sky, that's no big deal. Most people would probably say that to their friends, you know, I saw this last night, I wonder what it could have been. But the weirder the experiences, and particularly when you're dealing with encounters, you know, there's a knock on your door at midnight and there's two creepy pale guys or kids with solid black eyes staring at you. Most people probably would not talk about that for fear of ridicule. So, Although, you know, David and myself and various other researchers have collected quite a few black-eyed children's stories, I would not be at all surprised if there's, you know, far more still, you know, locked away behind closed doors because the people just don't want to talk about the fact that they saw this creepy pale kid with black eyes standing on the doorstep, you know, because it does sound admittedly strange, very strange. So, um... And again, that's one of the things we sort of we can never be sure of with anything like Bigfoot UFOs. How many sightings go unreported for fear of ridicule, or you know what the neighbours are going to say, or what the boss at work's going to say, that kind of thing. So I think I think that probably happens a lot. But there's no doubt in my mind that the black-eyed children phenomenon is a real one, and I think it's sort of more supernatural than it is sort of ufological. Do you know of anybody who actually let them in? Well, you know, that's a good question because all the cases I've got, they never did let them in. They were just so freaked out by the this sort of bland, pale, plastic-like face that they've got and, and you know, these sort of almost like soulless black eyes. I actually, I, don't, I can't speak for David, so but, he, you know, he, I'm sure he can... You can put your right on this issue. But personally, of all the ones I've got, I don't know of a single one where the black-eyed kids actually made it into the house. The people were so terrified. They either slammed the door or, 
you know, they, uh, well, they, they, every case pretty much, they slam the door. But in some of them, um, if, for example, they got like a pet dog, the dog would come racing to the door and barking and crying and then would run off and in some cases hide under the bed and, um, you know, not surface until the, the black-eyed children were gone. And just that aspect alone put people off from letting them in. So, um so, yeah, I mean, David may have, have more stories along those lines, but of all the ones I've got, they've always been, the, the kids have always been left standing on the doorstep. And then what's weird is that the person very often looks through the spy hole after they've closed the door behind them, and they're immediately gone. It's as if, as soon as the door was shut, as if they dematerialized. You know, they were literally there one second, and then literally gone the next second. Do we know where they come from? Do you think they're aliens? Um, well, there's a possibility, you know, the, this theory about alien-human hybrids that a lot of people are talking about, particularly today, the idea that part of the alien abduction phenomenon is not just to sort of, you know, understand our biology, our DNA, our cells, etc., but they're actually sort of splicing themselves with us to create creatures or entities that can if you like, to a degree, pass among us without being noticed. But there are still, still certain genetic issues which make people look twice. And, you know, you could make a good case that that's exactly what's going on with the black-eyed children, that we're dealing with something that is and actually looks like something that looks half human and looks half kind of like the so-called alien greys of of alien abduction stories. You know, you can, you can make a case that they look like that. But in, in saying that, there are a few cases where things go down sort of far more of what you would call like a supernatural angle. I've got a number of black-eyed children cases where the black-eyed kids turned up. And these are, these are there aren't many, but there are a few cases I've got, I've got all dotted across the US where people had, had visits from the black-eyed children after they'd been dabbling with Ouija boards. And the fact that they were so separated across the U.S. and, you know, weren't connected with each other, it suggests to me this is a real aspect of the phenomenon. And I don't think that would come into play if it was just nuts and bolts aliens. So I kind of lean more towards like a paranormal aspect for the, for the black-eyed kids. Do you think this is a phenomena that has more of a demonic trait if we look on a religious aspect? Or do you feel that this supernatural entity that you call the black-eyed kids is more of a, a nightmarish situation to help keep people away from investigating their own supernatural experiences? Well, I mean, you know, whenever, you, whenever we use terms like demonic, you know, they're very sort of controversial and, and create a specific image, namely literal demonic entities from, you know, a hell which is overseen by this guy with horns and a forked tail. You know, and I think it, it can be kind of, you know, when you sort of immediately put those images in a person's mind, you know, it may sort of bias their opinions on what we're dealing with. So I, I try and to sort of, you know, avoid terms like demonic purely and simply because it conjures at one particular imagery of, you know, uh, of demons, um, which, you know, we don't really know what the demonic phenomenon actually is or even what it is, you know. So, um, but I do think we are dealing with, you know, something that is definitively supernatural. Now, 
some people might say that makes them entities or creatures that come from other realms of existence, like other dimensions. Somebody else might believe they really do come straight out of hell. Um, you know, and again, a lot, a lot of the conclusions are very much sort of belief-based, but that doesn't take away the fact that regardless of, you know, if a person with a strong religious belief thinks they're demons or somebody else thinks they're interdimensional things, it doesn't take away the fact that the phenomenon, you know, is a very real one. And uh, I think that that's the most important thing of all. Is there anything similar to ufology when it comes to black-eyed children? Are the people having more paranormal experiences or ufological-slash-alien experiences that lead to this, or maybe even men-in-black experiences? Well, yeah, I mean, I get because I've done three books on the men-in-black and one on women-in-black, I get a lot of feedback from people who you know share their... MIB experiences with me and many of them are sort of filled with paranormal overtones um, I've got quite a few cases where people had been visited by the men in black and and for people who may not know you know that the movie versions are very different from the real ones Hollywood actually you know they put out a good fun couple of movies but they weren't actually like the real cases in most of the reports people described the men in black as being very skinny very pale looking um, and they sometimes have these large eyes which they hide behind these wraparound glasses, which has given rise to the theory that they could be themselves sort of alien-human hybrids. But I've got a, more than a few reports where people had been visited by the men in black, and pretty much almost immediately afterwards, they experienced violent poltergeist activity in the home, which, you know, you know, if it was just a UFO thing, I don't think that would happen. So again, I kind of pushed the men in black mystery to a degree at least down a down a paranormal pathway um but there's a lot of things like that i mean perhaps the most um visible example today of, of how this is there's like a very new phenomenon or fairly new phenomenon impacting on all this is the mystery of the the so-called slender man now the slender man for people who don't know is this sort of man in black type character wears a black suit a face, has a faceless face, no eyes, no mouth, no nose, and wears this old-style black suit and skinny black tie. And it, it did start off as like an internet meme. It was sort of like, who could come up with the creepiest creature on the internet? But what's happened is that there's now massive, not just interest in the Slender Man, but belief that he actually does exist. And incredibly enough, what has now happened in the last few years is that people are now actually seeing the Slender Man in, in the real world. So again, it comes back to this idea I mentioned of like thought forms or tulpas, the idea that the human imagination, if it concentrates enough and you have like a group consciousness, that you can actually create in your mind like a real world version of something that was actually a fictional creation. And then this, when you have this uh, angle of the uh, collective consciousness focusing on it, it can create like a real world version of the thing which actually started out as a piece of fiction. Are a lot of these sightings, whether it's men in black or black eyed children, segregated to certain areas or are they happening all over the place? Yeah, that's actually a good question because um, many black stories do come from all over the place. Now, you know, there's a, a huge amount of reports from the United States. Um, 
uh, I get a lot from reports from the UK and also from Mexican reports. Um, I've got a few reports when I went to Puerto Rico in 2005. Uh, for the second time, I went there with a, a film crew from um, a Canadian company called Red Star Films. And while we were out there, we interviewed a rancher um, who had had a, a chupacabra attack on his property. And the next day, both a man and a woman in black turned up on his property and they would just describe them just like people would elsewhere, sort of pale and emotionless, etc., etc. Just didn't kind of look right. Um, and there are also a lot of reports from New Zealand and Australia of men in black, but pretty much wherever there's been UFO activity, you'll, you'll find stories of the men in black. And, um, and that goes also with the black-eyed children. Um, Ironically, where I grew up in central England, there's a large area of forest called the Cannock Chase, where there's always been a, a lot of weird activity and paranormal stuff going on. And just uh, two years ago, there was a wave of um, black-eyed children reports coming from the, the Cannock Chase, and also a few men in black reports. So when you dig deeply, you know, you can find these same phenomena, but spread far and wide around the planet. When it comes to men in black, do you believe that they are alien, or do you believe they are from some kind of black op government alphabet agency? Well, we can never rule out the possibility that some of them can come from one of the ABC agencies, but I think if they do, what they've done is to sort of employ the use of, a, of pre-existing mytholo not mythology, pre-existing phenomenon of the men in black. In other words, I think there may be occasions when government people really have visited UFO witnesses and they put the black suits on because there is this legendary imagery of the men in black. In, in other words, it acts as a good cover for them. But they're not the real men in black. The real men in black are these weirder ones which could well be either extraterrestrial or paranormal. As I said, they for people who are sort of wondering what the real men in black look like in case they may have had an experience and not realized what it was. They are sort of usually around about six foot to six foot, six and a half feet tall. Very pale skin is like, you know, the color of a bottle of milk. Um, very emotionless, emotion-free. Um, they wear these wraparound sunglasses, which are almost like goggles, you know, that you'd wear in a swimming pool or, or in the ocean. And people have said that as they've got close to them, they realized why they wear these wraparound glasses because their eyes seem much larger and, and very different to our eyes. They're not black like the black-eyed kids. They're just massively oversized. And there are reports where the men in black seem to have the ability to affect the mind of the person. So, you know, the person actually opens the door and lets them in, which under normal circumstances, you know, you would not do, and particularly at midnight or whatever, but, but people do that. So... In other words, everything about the men in black is weird. Their appearance, their clothing, the skin texture and color, and just that their actions as almost as if they are so alien that they, they're trying to mix with us and infiltrate us, but they're doing a pretty bad job because people just realize how, how strange they do look. So what would be a scenario, Nick, for our audience so they know what would constitute a visit from the men in black? Well, for the most part, but not in all cases, most of the cases, though, that when somebody has a 
sort of profound, important, significant UFO encounter. It's usually under those circumstances that somebody is visited by the man in black or abductees or people who've had a contact case or, you know, they're driving down the road late at night and this thing lands in the road, you know, and they have a period of missing time or whatever. You can find men in black turning up usually within at the very most like a day or two after these experiences have occurred. There are a few weird, really weird ones where they've turned up in just hours afterwards and typically, as I said, they try and find a way to be invited into the home and very often people do that in, in kind of like a sort of almost like a hypnotized state, like an altered state that the, the men in black have rendered them into and they warn them not to talk about um, their UFO experiences, and they kind of do so in this weird sort of stilted way of talking as if they're not really conversant with our languages, they're almost as if they're still learning them. Um, and very often people get follow-up experiences where, you know, wake-up calls in the middle of the night, um, and the person, you know, the witness will pick the phone up and there's just sort of weird static and electronic noises on the phone as if, you know, again, some kind of intimidation. So so things like that. Um, and also a lot of cases where the the men in black have been seen outside someone's house, uh, someone's house and somebody will get out of a black car and quickly take a picture of the house and then jump back in the car. But those type of cases might be more inclined to be in the, the government side of things. But these, these weirder ones, they're not the government. They're something much, much stranger than, than you know any agency employee could ever be. Would you consider them maybe human-alien hybrids or maybe aliens using some sort of silicon-type shell to look like humans? Yeah, I, I actually don't rule out at all the idea of alien-human hybrids because you do have sort of certain qualities between us and you know, what people describe as aliens. For example, you have the, the very pale skin. You have the smooth skin. Uh, there was one case where the witness said that the man in black that they saw that he, he was, I forget the exact terminology, but it was basically he had gone over the top with the Botox, you know. His face looked impossibly smooth and lined-free. And he, the witness said it was actually quite creepy to see the man because it was impossible to tell if he was 25 or 75. It was all like his face was ageless. He just didn't look normal. Um, so, in other words, you can make a case with the very pale skin, the oversized eyes, the skinny body, and not really understanding our mannerisms and even our, you know, our languages properly, as if they're still learning them. You could make a case, a good case, you know, that we're dealing with something that is like a hybrid, and that may explain some of the reasons why the uh, in alien abductions, you know, we have a lot of experiences where the witnesses describe events and experiments of a genetics nature as if you know maybe they are sort of pulling dna and trying to splice it to create something that can infiltrate us now whether infiltrate should be perceived as being sinister or beneficial i don't know but um you know some people some people do think there is kind of like an infiltration program going on people who are abducted or have a very close encounter with UFOs seem to have these these MIB sightings quite frequently. 
Are people like that followed by them? Are they pursued? Or is it just maybe a knock at the door saying, you know, we don't want you talking about this? How does that encounter with them happen? Well, actually, that's a good question because sometimes, well, I should say most of the time, people do get the knock at the door if they've had, you know, if they get a man in black witness, excuse me, man in black visit, you know, the, the MIB always try and get into the house and then there's this sort of, interview slash threat you know you won't talk about this or else but it isn't just in the family home that these encounters occur now there's very often follow-up encounters you know where somebody might go to a restaurant you go out for dinner on a friday night and the person looks up and they see sort of this um again one of these creepy men in black just staring at them from across the other side of the restaurant there's actually a lot of weird sort of restaurant-based cases like this in the history of the Men in Black. And um, the other reports where, and this is where it gets sort of really weird, a lot of people have had uh, very strange dreams, you know, in the middle of the night, woken up and thought they saw the Men in Black in the room, but as if they'd materialised in the bedroom. In other cases, the witnesses had sort of very vivid, uh, almost like... um, dreams but in a wakeful state where everything seemed real but it was a dream almost as if the men in black could actually invade our dreams and that is actually one of the the theories for the men in black that they have the ability to sort of literally invade our dream states and, and and threaten us not in a physical state but almost like like in the matrix you know you don't realize you're sleeping when these things are going on you you think you're in a wide awake state because everything is so seems so real and visible to you and it's only later when you wake up you realize you were dreaming but there are a lot of cases like that where the men in black seem to be able to manipulate and insert themselves in our dreams and turn them into nightmares almost how do you think they're invading a person's dreams do you think it's it's strictly psychological or maybe telepathic yeah, I think that's really the only ways from our current understanding that it could be sort of a like a telepathic connection or something similar, like where the the mind of the men in black can project imagery into your mind. You know, rather than us coming up with the thoughts or ideas, they literally kind of insert them ourselves to the point where we think we're literally seeing them, but um, but we're not. But, you know, but they are still kind of manipulating the situation. So um, I think there is a, a great deal of sort of psychic phenomena connected with the men in black, particularly so, you know, in terms of how they're able to um, almost hypnotize people, mind control them to, you know, to do their will. I mean, that, that's sort of not normal behavior. But time and again, we get reports when they seem to be able to do that. Is there a scenario out there that do not call in Men in Black? Because I'll be honest with you, I've had a lot of people in the two and a half years I've been doing this show who have told me, warned me, I'm going to be followed, I'm going to get Men in Black, I'm going to get government officials coming to my door saying stop these topics. And much like you, Nick, like I asked you earlier in hour number one, that has never happened to me. You know, why would it? why does it happen to just ordinary people who really are just having an extraordinary experience. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of sort of the puzzling things about the Men in Black mystery, because they don't sort of keep targeting the same people 
or the same types of people over and over. You know, if it was everybody who had an abduction experience, it would be easy for us to probably follow, you know, the witnesses and then eventually get to see the men in black ourselves. But it's just, you know, it might be only every five out of every hundred alien abductees get visited by the men in black. It might only be four out of every hundred who've had a contact encounter that get visited. So it's not like they're all visited. So it's difficult for us to try and follow, you know, a pattern. That the, the fact is there is no sort of um, specific pattern. That's why it's, made, it's so difficult to really understand what's going on. But, you know, in terms of um, sort of being followed, being watched, uh, that does happen. You know, people have talked about that. And I said also things like phone interference. There are a few sinister cases of people being forced off the road by black cars, um, after having a UFO encounter. So, you know, there's all these different aspects. Most of them aren't particularly positive in nature from our perspective. And, um, but, you know, they're all part of and parcel of the, of the Man in Black mystery, if you like. Is there any point where we have had experiences with Men in Black over cryptid encounters as well? Or is it strictly UFOs or black-eyed kids? Oh, no. Um, there was actually a wave of uh, men in black encounters in Pennsylvania in 1973, most of which were investigated by a, a, a researcher named Stan Gordon, who's still active on the scene today. And Stan, in 73, um, when he was investigating this wave of um, Bigfoot sightings in rural Pennsylvania, he found stories where classic men in black had turned up and warned people not to talk about MIB, excuse me, about Bigfoot sightings. There have also been MIB sightings at Loch Ness, of all places. Um, a famous and um, weird one in 1974 involving a, um, a, man in, uh, a man in black who turned up in front of a um, Loch Ness researcher named Ted Holliday. And again, this guy was sort of oozing kind of menace and this sort of supernatural atmosphere. And they also turned up, Men in Black also turned up in the Mothman affair of 1966-1967 in um, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, when this sort of glowing-eyed flying humanoid creature known as Mothman was seen in and around the town of Point Pleasant. And in no time at all, many of the witnesses who'd seen the Mothman were again visited by the sort of weird-looking ominous-looking MIB. So we do find them in UFOs, uh, sometimes in conspiracy theories, um, definitely in cryptozoology as well. So, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it is still kind of untapped in trying to figure out exactly what they're doing and on what scale and, and why. So when it comes to alien abduction, one of the things I have noticed uh, since doing this show, Nick, is there seems to be a very large difference in encounters when it comes to the encounters we hear in the United States compared to those that I have heard in Canada. I've got no scientific study backing me on this. But just from talking to people in general, it seems that when it comes to the United States, the encounters seem to be a lot more malevolent than from what I hear here. And I'm wondering if you have noticed a pattern on the countries in regards to alien abduction on whether they are positive or negative. 
Well, um, I can tell you there definitely are differences. For example, um, certainly if you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, in South America, there were a lot of, like Brazil, Argentina, there were a lot of really violent type of um, abductions, which I would actually almost call like kidnappings. They're sort of more along the lines of, you know, something far more dangerous. But you can find a lot of South American stories of really violent uh, attacks and assaults on people and kidnappings by UFO entities, um, completely in contrast um, back in the UK, you know, where I'm from, um, we don't get as many abduction stories. We get more of the um, sort of older type of contact stories where people would see far more human-looking type aliens and sometimes, you know, there would be a discussion between the sort of uh, astonished witness and these entities, you know, talking about how we need to live in peace with each other and, you know, disarm our nukes. And it's almost like a philosophical discussion rather than the abduction kind of thing. So there's there's no doubt that there's sort of, you know, regional abductions, you know, uh, in different parts of the of the world. It can be quite different to, you know, what's going on elsewhere. But But typically... The, the, you know, what we do see in abductions is the whole issue of missing time, somebody being on, taken on board a craft, subjected to medical experiments, and then replaced, you know, back in their car or wherever they were. And, you know, they're in this kind of spaced out feeling, not really sure what's going on. And most of the events, if not all of it, is wiped out of their mind, but it starts to resurface it's sort of dreams and nightmares, and then then they start to have sort of conscious recall of what happened. Is it mainly the greys that are still taking people in your research, or are we starting to see other races start to become more prevalent as we continue to grow our own earthly signal into the atmosphere? Well, yeah, I mean... There's no doubt when you kind of look into the subject that it, the sort of overriding imagery of the aliens that we get is the so-called grey. And again, for those people who may not know, the alien grey sort of, you know, these entities with the large heads and the big black eyes that, you know, you can find on anything from T-shirts to keychains, you name it. You know, the, the image of the grey has become sort of, you know, ingrained in society. But in saying that, there are also a lot of um, abduction stories. I've got quite a few where people have said they've been um, abducted by what we call reptilians, like uh, like an upright reptile-type creature. I guess the closest thing I could think of would be, um, the, if you look at the, the monster in the old movie, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, that's how they kind of look, like a, a humanoid reptile-type creature. Um, there are other entities reported in abduction cases which have become known as the praying mantis aliens which kind of look like huge insects you know if you imagine something like a praying mantis or an ant but was sort of six feet tall they kind of have that insect quality to them as well so those are the you know the, the primary ones and there are actually a few cases not many just a handful where people have been abducted onto ufos and they've actually seen men in black on the ufos so you know that's sort of another little aspect where there's like a kind of a crossover between the two nick we literally have about 90 seconds left with you and i told you this was going to fly by my friend 
I told you it was going to fly by, and I hope we earned some respect with you that you'll feel comfortable doing this again. But I would love it if you could oh, tell yeah. our audience what you're working on now and when your next book is going to come out. Right. Well, I have a book out in September called Shapeshifters, which is a study of um, strange creatures throughout history, folklore, mythology, which uh, and, and witness testimony on everything of a shapeshifter nature, like uh, werewolves, um, the skinwalkers, you know, throughout history. And that'll be out in September. And then in February next year, I mentioned the Slenderman area uh, book, uh, excuse me, the Slenderman phenomenon. I've got a Slenderman book coming out in February of next year, which looks into the whole phenomenon, the theories for how this creepy creature, which began on the internet, is now being seen in the real world. You're a busy man, my friend, a very busy man. I want to say thank you on behalf of everybody at Space Out Radio for you coming on, and we look forward to having you on the show once again and when your new book on shapeshifting comes on out. That'll be a great, great book that uh, you're producing there. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Nick Redfern. The legend when it comes to talking about all things strange, all things up in the air, on the ground, in the forest, or even children at your door. We got one hour left on Spaced Out Radio. I'm bringing in my crew, E Squared and a little Everett Themer from The Encounter Online. We're going to have some fun. We're going to continue the talk on all things strange that Nick was just talking about. We're going straight till midnight Pacific, 3 a.m. Eastern. It's going to be a fun time indeed. I hope you stick on around, and we're going to get to your questions as well. So make sure if you're in any of the chat rooms or on Twitter, put them in capital letters so we can get to them, and we will get to them in the next hour. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scott. We'll be back right after this. Looking for a great weekend getaway this fall? Hi there, this is Dave Scott. Come on up to the heart of British Columbia for the first annual Spaced Out Radio Caribou Paracon, being held at the Spruce Hills Spa and Resort in 108 Mile Ranch, British Columbia. Speakers from all over North America are coming to discuss Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, and intuitiveness for the three-day event, September 29th to October 1st. For more information, go to spacedoutradio.com and click on the Caribou Paracon banner and book your tickets today. Come to BC, where the paranormal is waiting for you. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines. Your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with you 4 cop On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. 
We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, two mediums and a large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top-quality paranormal stories, from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter online, only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio, or our website including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. 
from Mothman to Frogman and everything in between. Hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Great to have you with us on the program. Tomorrow night, we're going to introduce you to a very interesting and subtle murder mystery. This happened 40 years ago in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I learned about this when I was at the Provincetown Paracon just a number of months ago, just two months ago. And so I'm bringing on a couple of people who are going to chat with me in regards to this tomorrow night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone listening in on WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of The Walking Dead. We are live as well on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans at over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you with us as well. We are live on KTLK, The Fringe FM, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas, And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Kakorophyophobia is your password. Kakorophyophobia. Make sure you use it wisely, Space Travelers, because Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the mighty S-O-R. Now, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with us live during the show as well. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can follow me on Instagram, Dave Scott, S-O-R. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can also tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes, or head for a plethora of adventures on our website, spacedoutradio.com. You can learn about our music man, Bumblefoot. Pick up some really cool swag in our Spaced Out Radio store, including VIP passes to the first annual Caribou Paracon, being held September 29th to October 1st, right here in beautiful 108-mile ranch, British Columbia, at the Spruce Hill Spa and Resort. We definitely want to see you here. 
here that weekend. So make sure you come to that. We're offering a 10% discount on tickets until July 31st. And you can also read up on the encounter online where we have Everett Themer and Eric Markham, our news tandem, bringing you some incredible stories from the world of the strange. Tonight, for hour number three, we bring in Everett Themer, Eric Markham, and from Forest Moon Paranormal, we bring in Eric Cooper and Everett. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, guys. How you doing? How you doing, Dave? We're doing good. We're doing good. You know what? I got to tell you, that I had been tracking down Nick Redfern for two years. He is a busy man, hard to get a hold of. But right now, Everett, we'll start with you on this. Is there anybody in this field who is more top of their game than Nick Redfern? No, I I don't think there is. In fact, just to listen to him tell these stories... The way he tells them, I, I was sitting in my office and I was getting creeped out just listening to him talk. I was looking over my shoulder thinking, oh boy, I hope there's nothing there. I, I love both the information that he gathers and researches and the way he tells his stories. And I don't think there's anybody that does it better right now. Preacher, what do you think? Oh, I think he's great. I, uh, I've liked Nick Redfern for years. I was glad we finally got him booked. I know we've been trying for about a year now. Oh, it's so it was, it's uh, been longer than that. It's been longer than that. A year time. that I've been trying. A year that I've been trying. So yeah. I'm glad you got him. Well, I'm very glad. But yeah, to he's it. on top of his, yeah, he's on top of his game. Uh, even if he's a complete, you know, BSer which I'm not saying he is. I don't think he is. He does it so well that I don't care. <laughs> it's a, he's a joy to listen to. Let me ask you this, Eric Cooper, as part of Forest Moon Paranormal. When you hear someone of his stature who is not using any type of forethought in his answers, he's looking at all realms of possibility. I didn't know that about him. Did you find that refreshing rather than saying, oh, Bigfoot is Gigantopithecus, or this is what aliens are, or black-eyed kids? It was refreshing to hear someone of his magnitude still keeping an open mind. Oh, hands down. He's been like that for over 20 years. I mean, he's one of the uh, one of the few that, that was around 20-plus 20, you know, 20 years ago when I first got in the field. And, uh, oh, oh, yeah, he, he he's a, we need more of him. I mean, I mean, seriously, we need more investigators like him that that look at the whole perspective and not just go off on a tangent on one side versus the other. No, we need we need more investigators like like Nick. Well, let's talk about a few of these topics tonight that Nick brought up. Let's start off with Men in Black. I personally have not had an experience with them. I've interviewed people who have. And they talk about the intimidation that goes along with it. Everett, as someone who has covered the paranormal field for a number of years, have you ever had any dealings with people who have had men in black experiences? I've spoken to people who have had men in black experiences. Surprisingly, I've never had any. But, you know, the thing that I find interesting about these is they're almost, and I think Nick brought this up, there almost appears to be two different types of men in black. 
because I have talked to people who their experience, it, it was more of a government intimidation idea. But then I've also talked to these people who kind of felt creeped out by these people. Like there was something a little bit off about them. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I personally don't know what they are, but I tend to go along with, with Nick's ideas and, and think that, you know, there is something here and that I'm, I'm not sure how to put this. You know, I, I think there might be two different types of men in black and it really is worth some sort of further study instead of just lumping them all in together and calling everything men in black and then looking at the movies. Preacher, what do you think Men in Black are? I, you know, I've been hearing about them since back in the 80s when I was in the Navy. I had a a friend who was probably certifiable genius or just plain certifiable. And he was talking about them all the way back then. So they've definitely got a history. So it's not like they're the latest, greatest craze to hit the UFO phenomenon so i i think there's something to them i've never experienced them and i don't know anybody who has but there's just too many stories out there to discount them as myth i'm still a little in the air with them i do believe they exist i do believe people are having experiences i'm not sure if they are alien or not but I could see the possibility of the government sending people out, you know, giving very subtle, lack of a better term, threats in regards to it. Cooper, you deal a lot in the paranormal. Have you had clients who have had MIB experiences? Um, I'm thinking not really, no. Um, now, there's two theories to that. There's one, like Everett said, I, I, I'm in agreement with Everett in that you've got one side that is government, and they're supposed to be going to abduct these homes. Or if you look at the uh, Montauk, not, not Montauk, uh, uh, Maury Island incident, uh, there was men in black involved in that one. Um, but, yeah, you've got, you've got the government side, and you've got the alien side. The alien side is... Uh, supposed to be the ones that, again, they also go to abductees and UFO witnesses and basically intimidate them, see what they know, and then they watch them. Dave, can I ask Coop a question? Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> Coop, have you ever seen any cases where somebody has been visited by one type of men in black? And then at a later date, visited by the other type of men in black? In research, yeah. In personal cases, no. Now, when I was stationed in Atlanta, uh, we had government agents ring around our apartment. Now, what were they doing? I had a security clearance at the time. I was UFO investigating at the time. Were they, were they intimidating? It didn't work. They didn't come knocking on the door. They were just ringing around our building. Now, were they raiding somebody else's apartment? I have no clue. Um, I know I was also followed at that point in time. My phone was tapped at that point in time. Um, but as far as personal cases go, none that I can think of. A few years back, I know we had one uh, client that talked about men in black, and she was in Texas. Now, we didn't get a whole lot of detail out of that case, which is why I don't 
generally bring that one up because I don't know. But there's supposed to be a lot of men in black in Texas, Texas cases. Um, and, of course, like I said, the Maury Island incident, which happened back in the 50s, uh, uh, like a two, two days before uh, Roswell happened. And that was where the craft uh, spit sludge onto a boat and killed a dog and wounded a child, I believe it was. Do you see, and Nick said that they, I, I, and I never knew this, that there have been men in black incidences with Sasquatch sightings as well, especially he mentioned the Pennsylvania area. You know a lot of Bigfoot researchers, Cooper. Do you know of anybody who has had any governmental sightings around Bigfoot when they've had their encounters? No, I don't actually. And, uh, I mean, uh, I could talk to Tyler and you, yeah, I know even Tyler's never experienced anything, uh, government that let's, uh, come talk to him or nothing. Uh, the one I'm intrigued by is the 1980s case in Mount St. Helens. Now there, we haven't been able to find any, uh, verifiable proof of that one either. And that's where the big yeah. boat was at the, at Mount St. Helens with the National Guard and whatnot. Explain that story a little bit more for people who may not have heard that one, because that is an incredible story that it came out of the eruption of Mount St. Helens on May 18th, 1980. It was, and uh, there were two Bigfoot that were found. They were taken by the military, by the National Guard. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to recall the thoughts while I'm distracted here. <laughs> um and they were taken to Fort Lewis. Now, there's supposed to be a base in California as well where they actually house Bigfoot. And uh, I don't know if they're experimenting on them. I don't know if they work with them. Uh, but they were supposed to be taken to Fort Lewis where they're housed for a couple weeks, and then they're taken to this place in California. Uh, and if you look on some of the Bigfoot sites, you'll actually pull up some of the – just Google – uh, 1981 Bigfoot National Guard and you'll probably pull up the story. Um, it, it's out there, but at the same time, everyone's getting their information from the same sources. Uh, I, I remember I found one bulletin board where they're actually talking to a guy that was supposed to be a witness, but I wasn't able to get a hold of him. Do you think I wonder if they use doctors or if they use vets. vet? Uh, you know, veterinarians. Is that what I'm curious about? I mean, like I've told you before, uh, I'd imagine him be a human doctor. I mean, just to be honest with you, because he's more human than he is animal. Um, right. Just in the cloak, I mean, come on, just in the cloaking. And uh, I'm, I'm with Dave on the interdimensional theory, because, I mean, how, how can you have a creature that can walk across a snowy field and then just the tracks disappear. And there's no trees for me because that's the argument. Oh, he probably went up a tree. No, there's no trees. There's no trees around mm. us. I mean, up at Lake Bay where we're having our Paracon is a hotbed of uh, a plethora of sightings of, of Bigfoot. Now, well, one, of the, one of the things that gets me about it is there's been eyewitnesses. Uh, there was a young man. His mom made him go to the uh, police station because what had happened, he was out hunting. And he saw one and automatically shot at it, you know, just out of reflex, just, he, 
He turned around, he saw, reflexed. and freaked out, and shot. Reflex, yeah. He felt horrible. Okay, so he goes to the police station. He, he tells them what he did. They got several departments out there. You know, they had search and rescue, sheriff, police. Anyhow, a huge swath of people going through this area that the kid said he shot. Never found a trace of blood. Never found a trace of anything. So the, and there's been, that's not the only case where somebody has either said they shot it or, you know, something has happened and it disappears. So I think the interdimensional aspect of Bigfoot's almost a given to me at this point. Right. A lot of these, go ahead, Coop. Well, like I've told you before, the only place I could think of on Fort Lewis where they might house him is, is that place I always call the farm. And that's over by the old Madigan, where they have that little building with a chain link fence, cameras, uh, all kinds of security features. But it's a little shack-looking building with a small parking lot. And there's always a lot of cars there. And it's too small of a building for a bunch of people to be into. And it's supposed to be an experimental location. It's the only place on Fort Lewis, and it's got a very negative vibe around it. Um, the, and, and like I told you, the reptilian story on Fort Lewis, uh, that's kind of the area that I think the reptilians hang out as well. Um, but that would be the only location I can think of on Fort Lewis where they would take Bigfoot bodies. Hmm. With, the, with these men in black sighting Everett, do you believe it's tied into anything to do with the MyLab experiments? It could be. I kind of go down the road that if if somebody has a a men in black experience and it is the typical um, the the men in black kind of just give off that uh, you know kind of tough guy don't say anything kind of attitude. I sort of lean towards maybe it's just something that the government is doing because, you know, they're not technically investigating UFOs. So you can't have somebody from the Air Force or the Army come out and talk to you, but they could have just these mysterious-looking people who show up and say, hey, don't say anything. You didn't see what you thought you saw. Nothing happened. And just kind of instill a little fear in people that they don't know what go- what's going on. They don't know if these people are, you know, government or what kind of add some mystery to it and, and encourage them or make them not want to say anything. I'm just wondering, because we have heard so much of the MyLab experiences that people are having, which are almost nightmarish, it would almost coincide with any type of fear that people are having from either Men in Black, Eric Cooper, or Black-Eyed Children. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm thinking here, uh, the, the, the... the my labs do seem more government and alien inter- intertwined. So I could very well see men in black coming from the my labs. Just based on the fear aspect. Preacher, what do you think? 
I think that's entirely uh, plausible. It seems like they'd have to be linked with the MyLab and the Men in Black. It seems like they would be the same department. You know, yeah, I can see the, the same uh, section. Well, I can see the Men in Black checking on their abductees. And if there's well, an abductee, you know, there's, that, there's, there's different types of Men in Black, though. I mean, there's the Men in Black that are obviously human. But it seems like there's that hub, that other that other kind of uh, more the strange MIB that doesn't really seem to speak English or doesn't seem yeah you know, doesn't doesn't seem human. So I'm wondering if the more human versions of the Men in Black are the ones that are connected to the MyLabs, and then the ones that just seem like. Uh, they're out of place. They're just wrong. The way people will describe them, they're not. They don't come around and say they're aliens. They just say they're they're freaking weird. Okay, and I'm wondering if those wouldn't be another entity, maybe mimicking the human men in black. Mm-hmm. And if uh, you have a my lab abductee that is uh, showing interest in talking, I could see them coming up to uh, start threatening and make them back off wanting to talk about it. Yeah, that's something you you don't... Go ahead, Everett. Talking about talking, hasn't the Men in Black experience kind of morphed a little bit from early on it seemed that these people would knock at your door and they would want to talk to you and they would ask questions and they would, you know, kind of pick your brain on the experience and then at the end sort of imply that you're wrong to the more recent ones. It's basically been just a, a quick overview and you didn't see that, you know, you didn't see that or that didn't happen kind of thing. They, they've sort of gone from, questioning and interrogating and interacting with the abductees or UFO uh, viewers to more of just a straight, I don't want to say bully type, but kind of telling them what, uh, what they did or didn't see. More of an intimidation oh, crew. Yeah. Could this, but could this be a morph, a morph with, uh, with society? It does seem like it's changed, though. I mean, it, like Everett was saying, it used to be more like a like guys from Project Blue Book were coming to your door, and now it's more of a sinister, otherworldly agency. So, yeah, it seems like the whole the whole Men in Black experience has evolved or has has taken on a different character over the last thirty or so years. And you know what's funny too. Is, so you have the, the, the blue book persona of, of Men in Black, and then all of a sudden you got the movie Men in Black, which kind of made them look all friendly, and yeah, look, we fight aliens, and we're keeping the planet safe. But it didn't change what's going on today. Right. From the, from the experiencer side. I don't know. That's just one of those uh, things that... You know, could it just be a bunch of okay? Let's let's just take it. Let's let's just strip away anything paranormal. Maybe it's just a bunch of enthusiasts that are kind of like the geeks that live in their 
grandma's basements because they can't get jobs. They hear about, you know, what if, what if all it is is just some nerdy guys that they're pasty white because they stay down in the basement playing video games all day. And this is their sideline as they go interview people with, uh, UFO experience or, you know, abductee experience. And it's more of a, you know, just, it's not that they're otherworldly. They're just socially retarded and, you know, awkward and, you know, nerdy. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like the fake crop circle makers. <laughs> okay. Markham's question there kind of brings up something that I was thinking about. Doesn't the fact that the, the experience hasn't changed after the three men in black movies, give it a little bit more validity. Nobody's really jumped on the bandwagon of kind of telling the story in the theme of the men in black. It's, it's sort of, it's morphed, but it's sort of stayed the same course and changed gradually. There was never a big, uh, all of a sudden, you know, everybody's coming to the door with a little mind eraser kind of thing. The, the stories haven't changed. Does that give it any more validity? I think it does. I see where you're going. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, it could. Yeah. The fact that it hasn't, the phenomenon has not uh, accommodated the new, you know, it hasn't adjusted or accommodated to the new paradigm kind of makes you wonder if there isn't something to it. Could be. Could very well be. Let's switch over to Black Eyed Kids for a moment because that's another intriguing topic that I don't think we do enough of on this show. But there are people having these experiences. And like we asked Nick, has anybody ever really let them in? And it just seems like that is still the million-dollar mystery when these black-eyed children are asking your permission to come in your car, your home, your place of work, wherever it may be. I don't know if I would want that experience because I'm not sure if it's demonic, if it's malevolent aliens, or what the hell these kids are. But the sense of fear that a lot of people get, Preacher, when they have these encounters just seems to be unraveling people in their own socks. You know, i got to wonder about that. I don't know... I tend to be sort of a punch them first, ask questions later type, and I don't know how I would in, how I would handle an encounter like that. I uh, this whole black eyed kids thing. Maybe the reason we don't hear about the ones that let them in is because once they let them in, they disappear. You know, there's all these people in the United States and the world, you know, as a whole that disappear without a trace every year you know maybe that's why we never hear about what happens if you let the black-eyed kids in your house i don't uh you know basically if i don't know you well like if i haven't known you for years you're not getting past my threshold anyway but i don't uh i i, I wonder if the the reason we never hear about the black eye, you know, the experience, what happens when the black eyed kids come in is because if you let them in, hey, that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't know. That's the mystery. 
And the first case of black-eyed kids that's documented is in Abilene, Texas, 1996. And it was a guy named Brian Bethel. And uh, there were three of them, three kids. And he pulled his car up to his job. And he was going to get out. And uh, he turned, and they were just there. They came out of nowhere. And it was nighttime. And there was nobody around when he pulled up to his job. But all of a sudden, there's these three kids. And they said, hey, mister, can you give us a ride? And he just had this instant feeling of fear that he had to leave. And he told them no. And one of them actually got, they, they looked confused, like they'd been never, had never been told no before. And one of them actually hit his car, and he, he gunned the engine and left. He looked in his mirror, and they were gone. No trace of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the... Farthest back I know of, as far as the black-eyed kids phenomenon that goes. I, well, you know what scares me? I would almost like to look into that. It. Huh? Go ahead, Everett. Go ahead, Eric. <laughs> no, no, I want to hear what kids say. <laughs> um, what what scares me the most about them, and, and I will admit that, yes, I, I kind of have a little fear of black-eyed kids, is that, and I believe we were talking with Elizabeth about this a couple months back, these kids that turn out or appear to be black-eyed kids, but they appear normal. And then all of a sudden, they, it's like they let their guard down or something, they blink, and for just a minute or so, their eyes are completely black, and then they go back to normal. And I think we had quite a discussion on trying to figure out what's, what that kind of phenomena would be, because that almost seems to be a mix of some sort of normal child and these black-eyed kids, because they don't appear constantly as black-eyed kids. And, and that, that really kind of scares me. Yeah, that would. I mean, if it's a black-eyed kid that creeps you out from the start, that's one thing. You have a chance to say, no, I'm not letting you in, go away, get lost, uh, whatever. If, if they look normal and then they do a bait and switch on you, yeah, that's scary as it can be. And, you know, Christina George is the actually, actually the first one I've heard talk about the black-eyed adults. Who? If you remember that, if you remember that from last month. Christina George. I remember that. Oh. Yeah, Christina George. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gentlemen, I have a question coming in from Twitter from Forever Young at hashtag Spaced Out Radio asking, do you think MIB experiences changed because they have to intimidate because persons are becoming more or more willing to come forward? Coop, let's start with you on that one. I think that's very possible. Uh, Like we were saying, you know, back in the 50s, it was kind of the nuclear age. Everyone had this bunker, and they were taught to go under the table when the you know the they were scared of the nuclear uh, age and whatnot. And you could probably go boot and you would run. Whereas today, people just aren't scared of much anymore. So they had to change the tactic to more of a, uh, a threatening demeanor. So I can go with that. Preacher, how about you? Yeah, I think that's a or Everett. I, 
I, I think that's a, a great point because, you know, as people come forward, they have so many more outlets to go to. So it's not like back in the 60s and 70s when they were trying to prevent these people from maybe going to a local newspaper or a local radio station. Now they're trying to prevent them from going to not only those, but, you know, any Internet site, any reporting you know, private reporting group that investigates this stuff, they are fighting a lot more outlets that these people have available to them. So I think that's a great point, and it it probably it probably does have something to do with that. Well, it still begs the question, though, why are they even trying to intimidate? We're at a point where I think the tipping point is, you know, in the 70 percentile, you know, 70% of people believe in ET, you know, believe in the paranormal period. Now take your specific flavor and, you know, whether it's, they believe in ETs, Bigfoot, whatever, but you know, the belief is out there. So it's almost kind of a, it's like they're trying to stuff the cat back in the bag and it's not working. And I, I don't know maybe that's why I haven't had the experience. I can't think of too many things other than my cat. They could threaten that I would, <laughs> I would back down from, but I, you know, I wonder if it has, you know, if they're trying to step up the game because, you know, you can, you can do YouTube, you can do Facebook, you can do Twitter. Yeah. You know, there are so many different outlets out there. You know, back when I was a kid, it was the newspaper, the local news, the national news, and that was about it. There was no, if you couldn't get your story past an editor or past a reporter, it died on the vine. Now, yeah, I mean, the bad thing is people are making crap up just for their 15 minutes of fame, but by the same token, if you have a legitimate, real experience, there's no end of outlets for you to put that experience out for the public to see. But is that the media's fault, just like what Nick Redfern talked about in the first hour? That it's not that they're not believers, i.e. the the mainstream media. It's just they don't want to put their name on the line out of fear of ridicule and professional etiquette. I don't know about it. I don't know because that, I don't think that argument holds as much because Face it, if you had the story, if you had the smoking gun and you were a mainstream media, you know, media person, you're made. If you could come out, if you could break that story, I mean, you know, that, that you'd be on easy street the rest of your life. So I'm not so sure it's that. I think there's so much BS out there that you might find that, you know, a serious, I would, I'm putting myself in the place of a serious, uh, you know, somebody makes their living as a journalist. Would you want to take a chance on something that far out? Just because so many people have been faked into believing just mundane things. Now look at the, the guy that had that whole story about the, the impoverished child and all that it turned out he made all the crap up and it, you know, he'd made it all the way to, uh, Oprah. So it's all, it's such an incredible 
story, I got to wonder if they're just not afraid of being had by a very clever charlatan. But we've not seen, so much that we've seen that, Preacher, we've seen that before, though, with Bigfoot, with with that guy somewhere in, in a state that ends with Ucky, I believe, <laughs> that said that he had a Bigfoot body in his freezer. And it turned out to be, you know, bear fur and just a big a big sham. And that's what we see a lot well, of in this yeah. field. Well, yeah, that's that's the problem. I mean, that I re, I know the one you're talking about, and where the guy supposedly found it and put it in his freezer, and it was just a uh, it was a costume. And that's one that you know he kind of baited the locals, but most serious cryptozoologist in fact one guy recognized uh, immediately recognized the costume that he was using and record you know put online oh that's such and such company's bigfoot costume available here i mean so you know that was the fault of you know i almost think the problem is we want to believe in this stuff so badly that in a lot of cases, maybe uh, a newbie reporter is willing to jump on something like that just in case it's real. And by the time you get to be a veteran with some experience, you're so jaded that if the flying saucer landed in front of you, the gray got out, slapped you in the face, you wouldn't believe it. You'd think you're being punked by MTV or something. Everett, you want to and chime in? Oh, well, I think I think Eric is right. You know, none of these uh, outlets are going to the mainstream outlets are going to want to get involved in a story that doesn't have a smoking gun. I think that's that's absolutely correct, and I think that because they don't want to look foolish, they don't want to look like they've you know, been duped. And I think when they do cover these stories, that's sort of why they cover them with that kind of weird okay. news. Ooh, look what happened. These weird people kind of story, you know, twist to it because they want to cover it, but they don't want to look like they're falling into a trap of another hoax. I agree with you there, Everett, but I'm going to take this one step further though. Let's go back to March 13th, 1997, during the Phoenix Lights, where every major newscast was carrying that, not only locally in the cities of Phoenix and Tucson, okay, but across the state, literally across the world. That I saw it in Germany. Exactly. Every major news... Ad, uh, yeah, one second, Eric. Uh, every major news outlet was covering that event. And then the following day when Governor Fife Symington absolutely embarrasses everybody, the media refused to ask the questions that they needed to ask to take that story a little bit more seriously. So here on one, day one, they're running these lights that are flying in the sky. And on day two, they're sitting with the government laughing and and chortling their way to making this a a silly type story rather than doing their quality journalism. So in that situation, 
We've seen the mainstream take that story. They want to believe it, but they've refused to take that next step, which is the follow-up into why it happened, what happened, and how do we know why it happened. Do you see where I'm going with that, Everett? Right. I see where you're going. And, and I think you mentioned a key word there, embarrassed. None of these stations want to look foolish. They don't want to risk looking bad for their advertisers and their sponsors. So if the government comes out and, you know, makes a joke of something or, or downplays it, honestly, it's in the, the interest of these media organizations to kind of toe the line. They don't want to be the one that's saying, oh, no, the government is lying now. They they want to be from from a a organizational and money making perspective. They want to be the one that is going along with the government story, so that they don't look embarrassed, they don't look foolish, they don't look like the news outlet that got duped, and then lose sponsors. But they had the chance in that situation to call the government out. Fife Symington, 15 years later, didn't get the press that he needed or deserved when he came out and said, I was wrong. I witnessed them. I didn't know what they were. I knew they weren't ours. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Okay, maybe he was just trying to get back in. But he's also the jerk who threw the water on the fire when there was a true story there. And maybe yeah, that's why he that didn't get crappy. the coverage... Go ahead, Everett. Maybe that's why he didn't get the coverage when he came out 15 years later, because everybody's looking at him as, well, he he turned this into a joke before. What's he doing now? Why why the motivation all of a sudden 15 years later to change your story? Personally, I think it was to get himself back into the story. He had kind of fallen out of the limelight and, uh, you know, was no longer governor. Let's, let's stick myself into the story again and, and change what I said before. And in that case, I'm not sure whether he's telling the truth now or, or back then. I'm not sure if somebody like that deserves the coverage. Marco? Well, look at history. Well, that what gets me is, okay, here he is. He had a chance to be sort of a poster child for that event. And he gets his press secretary to dress, well, I think what was his chief of staff to dress up as an alien. And he makes a joke out of it. Years later, when it's like nobody remembers who Spike Symington is, Oh yeah, I saw the craft and I saw alien occupants. That reeks of somebody who probably didn't experience either one. I don't think he. It, it to me it, it plays as somebody who is trying to get back in the limelight somehow, and he's like, "Well, my political career's dead. Why don't I play the UFO card?" That's how it struck me. Of course, I'm cynical as hell anyway, but. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to call out the media on that one, you certainly could call him out for 15 you know, years later 
you know, waiting. You, you could call him out for turning it into a joke yeah. and, and lying. He, he had the opportunity to turn this into a legitimate story. He could have come out and said, you know what? We don't know what that was. Instead, like Eric said, he he brings out his chief of staff dressed as an alien. Right there, you can't give the guy a lot of credibility. But like like Eric Cooper said, was he threatened? Were there higher-ups telling him to do that? That's all that would come across to me. And look at, I was going to bring up, look at Roswell. Look at all the news sources that had to, all the media that had to recant the story over Roswell. Is there possibly, and I know that was a long time ago, but there's, there's still that hanging over the media's head, possibly, that they don't want another Roswell incident? You can look at that picture, Jesse Marcel Sr., posing with that, yeah. those bits of, and you know, you can look at his face and you can see, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. that man is not happy in those pictures. He, he is obviously, you know, he's saving his career, but you can tell by the expression on his face, he's not particularly happy about it. The bits of weather oh, no. balloon and kite were I mean, not it, what he, but you talk about international media, you know, Darn well, Roswell got international media just like the Phoenix Lights did. Do yeah. you think maybe the right media has that? Do you think maybe that had has some kind of a fear effect on the media if they don't want another Roswell? Even fifty years later. Hmm. I think you have to factor that in. Yes, I. I think you definitely you can't dismiss that. But I just can't believe there's not some young greenhorn journalist out there who doesn't realize that this is the story that would make them. It just seems well, like it's keep, a hands-off type of story. They probably keep you the know, greenhorns out of that. They probably keep the greenhorns out of that particular position, though. I don't know. That's I you don't know, know enough about that line of work. About right. 10 years ago, there was a gentleman who was working on a computer program that he was going to be able to reconstruct the text of the note that Jesse Marcel was holding in that photo. Oh, Do you guys yeah. know anything about that or whatever happened to him? Because he had parts of it, and he made a good case for the note referencing hiding a UFO or lying about a UFO. Yeah, I remember that. But he made a a very good case. And I remember that it was another one of those things where the information is going to be coming, and then nothing ever came from that. I do remember hearing that guy interviewed. Uh, I think the problem was he couldn't get a... it, it was one of those, it added fuel to the flame, but it didn't, it wasn't the smoking gun. But I remember hearing that guy interviewed several times, and it was a matter of, yeah, you're right, it was disclosing. If you really, if you got to have a document or anything, 
to make, you know, make to sway you one way or the other. There is a document that was written by J. Edgar Hoover that somehow managed to slip through the the cracks that references the Roswell incident and re- references, I think it had to do with the Cape Girardeau incident. And J. Edgar Hoover's like not wanting another raw, you know, he references one in the other. Now do your own research. I'm not sure if it was Cape Girardeau, but there is a document that references back to a UFO in Roswell, and it's from you know it's from J. Edgar Hoover himself. Hmm. Yeah, but that could always be argued. Somebody, somebody could always say that that's a fake, fraudulent document. Um, you know, it's inauthentic. Okay. My thought with and that's what the note, with the note that Jesse Marcel was holding. If they could, if that had ever come to fruition and they were able to figure out the text on that note, there would be almost no way to deny that because that would have been entirely intermilitary and still within military bounds in his hand. Right, sort of a teletype right off the machine. Well, I've always thought that Jesse Marcel Sr. got the crap end of the stick because Okay, with what he did for a living in the military, he would have known a UFO from a crashed weather balloon. Yes. There's no way. He, there's no way he would have come back to town and said, "We've got a UFO. You know, we've got a you know an alien saucer that's crashed on the Braswell farm." He knew darn well what he had seen, and it wasn't any weather balloon, and even. You know, consider the fact that when the Air Force tried to come up with an explanation, they used a program called Mogul that wasn't even in existence at the time. I think, okay, I'm bad with dates, which is weird for somebody with a master's in history, but (laughs) Roswell happens in 47. I believe Mogul was in 52, yeah, 52. So, 52. So if the pro- mogul program isn't until 1952, the big story there is how did it time travel back to 1947? And so, was Marcel a major? Yeah, major Marcel. Yeah, major, yeah, major Jesse Marcel, uh, and, and yeah. You want, now, uh, a major in... in uh, a major is going to know the difference. It's not like he was some kind of sergeant or a specialist or, a, you know, even a captain. A major is going to know. He's been around for a while. Yeah, he's not, you know, he's not a shave tail. He's got, no. you know, he's got some bona fides. He's been in the field a while. And, you know, that just, if that whole to, story reeks. If you wanted to make it more legit, get a private. A private can make a mistake real easy. Oh, yeah. You got some but farm no. kid out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but no, you didn't you didn't a a <laughs> right. I mean, when you well, talk like to said, you know, I, I look at that picture of him posing with those bits of kite parts and the, the expression on his face. Is, oh, I, I mean, it's priceless. It's like, yeah. I mean, it's obvious in if you look at the man's face. 
He's got that, you've got to be effing kidding me <laughs> look on his face. Yeah, it's just not. Yeah, it's just hey, not right. Markham, I, I know that at one point they tried to play off the metal that was found there as misidentified mylar. How prevalent right. was mylar <laughs> back in the in the 40s? You know, it doesn't seem to me that there Mylar, I thought Mylar didn't come out till the 60s. Let me check that well, out real quick. Not to mention that material, if I remember right, they folded it in like three or four different parts, and it snapped right back to the original position. And it had runic, right. uh, it had runic symbols on it. Or Egyptian symbols. Yeah, on. and they try and say that that was some kid's tape. That yeah, they they explain that away by saying there was a tape manufacturer that uh, used you know put wingdings on their back in their the forties. I don't think so. Yeah. That, <laughs> okay. Maybe maybe today, not in the forties. Uh, I'm trying to find y'all go ahead without me. I'm looking that up because it doesn't seem like it's a polyethylene tetra, blah, blah, blah. It's a DuPont product. 1964 is when Mylar. Okay. This is the source I'm looking at right now. says that Mylar came out in 1964. So, <laughs> We're about, am, I what, correct in, in, <laughs> am I correct in remembering that at one point the government or the army was saying that it was essentially mylar that he was that, that yes. had been found? Yeah, yeah. That should have been that should have been the air force though, because the army had nothing to do with it, other than maybe no, that was air force. No, it was army air corps back then. It was forty seven, so there okay. wasn't really uh, there wasn't an air. I, you know, like I said, check me, Google it and find out. <laughs> but I guess we had Google it. Uh, no, I, I don't think, I think the Army Air Corps didn't, uh, didn't become the Air Force till what, was it 52, something like that? But anyway, I, you know, yeah, they tried to say that Mylar, which came out a year after I was born. So, no, there wasn't Mylar in 1947. They barely had nylon back then i'm thinking they did you know silk parachutes seems like nylon was probably the, about the only synthetic fiber back then i'm not sure maybe polyester but it wasn't you know it, it wasn't that you know it wasn't mylar no matter what they it, mylar i think one of the things they say is mylar took on became the uh, the uh, scapegoat and right. people you know just took it you know took it at face value oh it was mylar nah <laughs> I don't think so and, and like Milo was saying in the chat uh, no local swamps to blame on a swamp gas <laughs> not New Mexico <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was no J. Allen Heineck <laughs> gentlemen I hate to call it the night but guess what it is that time to start to wrap things up, Eric Markham, Eric Cooper, and Everett Themer, 
thank you so much for being on Spaced Out Radio for hour number three, my friends. It's been a great time indeed. So you guys hold on. i got to wrap this thing up. If you're listening in, you hear Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal rocking it in the background. Bumblefoot is the official sound of Spaced Out Radio. He rocks us in and out of every single show. We absolutely love it. We want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. I want to introduce you to my team, Eric Cooper, Force Boone Paranormal, Everett Thiemer, and Eric Markham from The Encounter Online, Kim Gandy, our Director of Business Development, Thomas McGowan in Sales, Bob Davis, the sultry, dulcet tones of our intro voice, Catherine James, Social Media, Jolene Lammers, Web Design, and Lana Scott, who is our Paranormal Paracon coordinator. We absolutely love having you all a part of the team. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. We will be back in exactly 21 hours from now. We're talking Lady of the Dunes, a murder mystery from Provincetown Paracon or Provincetown, Massachusetts that we learned at the Paracon back in May. It's going to be a great show indeed. We get going at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time. And you as my friends who are in the chat rooms, who are out listening, who are at hashtag Space Out Radio on Twitter, keep it up. Keep spreading the word. Because together, we own the night. Talk to you tomorrow. Mr. Bumblefoot, take us home. <laughs>